what's up, everybody? We are a uh, big show tonight. Uh, welcome to the Peripheral Views Podcast. We've got a big episode in front of us tonight. Um, I'm your host, Jake. My co-host is, once again, the amenable Errol Hooker. What's going on, Errol? Hello. Nothing much. Another big night. Another Peripheral Views Podcast coming at you. This is... Uh, this is the 16th episode in the entire catalog library of the uh, Peripheral Views podcast. Sweet 16. Sweet 16. Oh, it's sweet, all right. Woo, boy, we got a real good one. We're going to dive in all the dirty details of today's content. Um, it's a big episode. We're talking uh, Stanley Kubrick for the first time, really. I mean, we've been peripherally, uh, no pun intended, talking Stanley Kubrick for a bit, you know, in and out on the surface of a bunch of other episodes, but we're going to dive into some actual content, a true piece of art from Stanley Kubrick uh, and, and almost uh, as well a piece of art of Stephen King, obviously. Um, we're talking The Shining. We promised it a couple of weeks back, um, and we're going to deliver on The Shining as best we can. We're going to talk We're going to talk about the story of the production. We're going to talk about the content, the theories. We're going to do the whole damn thing. Um so uh, yeah, that's that's what's on on the docket today. But let's hit some housekeeping stuff before we get rolling here. Um, you know where to find us. Same spots as per usual on X or Twitter, um, however you refer to it these days. At peripheral v one two three, we're on SoundCloud.com forward slash peripheral views one two three. That's a good spot to stream us on the browser if you got it. Um, also on YouTube, just throw us in the search bar, Peripheral Views Podcast, great spot for it. Um, you know, everybody's using YouTube. YouTube has really had some longevity in this game, has it not? I mean, it's really become like the, uh, a, a true TV source. What do you think, Errol? Do you think YouTube's like, has, it's never lost a, an ounce, it seems like. Um, so I, that's actually a really good way to put it. I've always, uh, really liked YouTube for what it was and it's only, um, it's only growing. It's it's a monster. It's everything's a, there. Everything you can YouTube. find something, man. You'll find something. Just Google yeah. or not yeah, Google, but just YouTube it. Most importantly, yeah, I use Google to YouTube stuff. But yeah, uh, it's like Google to get to YouTube, and then you get yeah, just to look YouTube up videos, and then it's on YouTube, and then you'll learn a little bit more about you know whatever. That's that's how I get a lot of stuff here. For real, I'm not gonna it's bullshit true, yeah. you guys. No, it's true. I, I do the same. And you know what? Guess what? For you listeners out there. Another another thing you can find on YouTube, Peripheral Views Podcast. Th- show, throw us up in your search bar. You're going to find our page. It's got all our content. Almost every episode's up there. Uh, we're still missing a few. You know, we, we do our best with the copyright stuff, so we've got a couple episodes that are kind of lingering in the outskirts that uh, you can find elsewhere um, in an audio, audio but format. YouTube, YouTube's got that stuff on lock. Yeah, they don't play around with the copyright, and you know, like you know, we're not monetized in any real way um, as a podcast quite yet. But you know, just for future for future practices, we try to avoid that. And there's a few episodes that might not be on YouTube, but if YouTube is not your uh, platform of choice to check out some of the peripheral view stuff, um, obviously Apple Podcasts is a great spot for it. If you're an Android user, throw us in the uh, search bar on your Spotify app if you if you use that as well if you're a subscriber and uh we're on both those apps if you do listen to us there please uh you know please leave us a a a rating and review along with a subscription that like absolutely supports and helps our analytics um keeps us trucking along uh, keeps us on the right track and keeps us uh you know it's just going to help us in the long run to keep keep this podcast flowing keep the content coming um 
So uh, that that's it for the uh, platforms. We also do have a website that you can check out all of our content. It's up there, peripheralviewspodcast.com. Um, check out all of our contents up there. We've got um, we've got a couple extra pages on there too with some of our ratings and such. Um, our previous episode that we just launched was uh, just a couple weeks back. We did a top five Stephen King apt for today's episode. In fact, uh, top five Stephen King um, film adaptations along with our top 10 horror films to kind of go along with the month of October. We talk a lot of films on the pod. So um Aptly, we are uh, transitioning into The Shining. I know that we did we did talk about Killers of the Flower Moon about doing a preview show. Uh, my boy Errol here. We're waiting on we're waiting on a viewing. Errol, you got these folks. We we promised a delivery of content, and you let them down. You let them down. But Errol's gonna Errol's gonna peep that movie here in the uh, in the coming in the coming days or so. It, it's a long yeah. com- commitment of a film. Um, I'm in, just trying to I'm place. trying to get on the right sync with my roommate because he wants to see it too. But not only no, yeah. no, it's it, here's the beautiful part about that film. It's it just came out, and the longer it's like a fine wine. I guarantee you, the 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 conversation we're gonna have about it will will age. Uh, you know, with the film, you know, the, the longer we take to get around to kind of talking about it, the more we can kind of think about the ideas that surround the film and embody it. So no rush yeah. on that. Um, for our listeners who were looking forward to that, we will be getting that out to you guys just as a preview show. Um, as soon as Errol gets a chance to peep the film, once that's, once that's in the books, we'll sit down and, and uh, punch out a recording for you guys um, on our initial thoughts. Um I've got a lot of initial thoughts on the film. I thought it was great. I thought it was uh, that's 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 number one. Uh, it was unbelievable movie movie going experience. But there's a lot more to it than that. And we'll talk about that in the uh, coming days or weeks. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Errol, have you been watching any films? Has anything uh, hit your radar other than the uh, the content of the day, The Shining? No, yeah, it's just been that. I've been. Uh... Just itching to see uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Other than that, I haven't had time to do much else. Yeah, I mean, The Shining is like um, it's a it's enough for like six films. So there's so much going on with this movie, um, and so much to talk about. Um, for me, on the other hand, I I do get a. I mean, I'm just a I'm a I'm a cinephile at heart, so I'm just always watching movies. And uh, I've I've actually seen a bunch that I hadn't seen uh, either in a long time or I hadn't ever seen. Um, I watched. Uh, hadn't seen American Beauty in a long time. We got got a chance to revisit that one. Weird film. A lot of like pretty uh, tough stuff. I mean, I don't, f- folks who have seen American Beauty, there's t- there's stuff in that film that's like very <laughs> did not age really all too well. Uh, very very difficult film to watch. Um, good film. Um, a lot of good like messaging in there and and some some good. Uh, Obviously, some really talented filmmaking and talented acting, but there's some there's some tough sexual stuff going on in that movie that's not really super aging well. Um, better yet, month of October watched Young Frankenstein. Errol, you ever seen Young Frankenstein? When I was young, yeah, it's one of those. It's it's one of those like classics. You got you got to check out a little Mel Brooks in your life every once in a while. Um, I got a chance to rewatch that with my daughter. She actually found something funny. You know what's great about Mel Brooks is like he's like kind of an old filmmaker, and he dates all the way back to like the late fifties and the sixties and shit. And mm. like he's so fucking slapstick, and he like always has like some fart humor. Um, that like my three year old was just like she was rolling. She was she it was getting her, you know. Just 
apple not falling too far from the tree there. Yeah, no, that's that's 100% me. Like I have I have <laughs> I have I have programmed <laughs> I have Pavlov my children to find flatulence hilarious, which is I don't intend on stopping. I'm going to keep that train going. Um, I think Louis C.K. said it best. He was like, he was like, you don't have to be a genius to find farting funny, but you would have to be stupid not to. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's that's my that's a, exactly my take. Um, what else did we see? I got a list here going. Uh, obviously, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon. We're going to talk about that. I watched um, Dirty Work with Norm Macdonald. You ever seen that? Is that what was that ever hit your radar, Errol? Mm-mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great, man. There's like, there's some fucking bits in that movie um, that are just like tailor made for immature humor that I'm super into. So, you um, know what I, you know what I did watch? Let's hear it, dude. I went to the Dulles State Office Building and watched a, uh, the, uh, like a rendition of Newsies by like okay. people in the like in the town, dude. That was it. Was the production was crazy, bro. Really? Okay. Yeah, there's people were doing cartwheels and shit. Like, like now New York showing out, like front flips and stuff. I was like, oh my god, it was like a full house. I was like, this is crazy. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah, well, was, listen, that's it was, it was that's a, really a performance. Good. I mean, films offer the performance and live performance just the same. Yeah. No, I was a uh, you know shout out a uh, shout out Lyric Theater Watertown. That was wild. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, listen, if they've got, like I said, we, uh, if, if they've got any shows coming up, let's plug them up. Let's plug them in. Oh yeah. No, I'll have to be sure to uh, do more of that. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll assume that a lot of the people listening will at least start off being people we immediately know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of how it kicks off, but nice. Usually okay. Cool. Starts. Let's, uh, let's shift gears. Uh, we'll, we'll get that kind of stuff out of the way. Um, I want to talk a little bit. So like we've got uh, an episode coming up that this will kind of tie into. So I want to make sure we have some time to uh, before we dive into The Shining, because like I said, this is like this is such a big film and there's so much to talk about in relation to it. Uh, I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about what went down yesterday. Errol, did you did you see the Francis Ngannou versus Tyson Fury fight? Was that something that hit your radar? Well, I just I could only watch like the highlights and like watch it after because that was a it was during the uh during newsies. Did you? Uh, I mean, did you see the fight in full or did, like enough to like score it? We'll say. Did you see it enough? No, I didn't watch it enough to score it. Okay, well, I watched it in full to score it, and I know it's a controversial. Um, I honestly thought in real time that Francis won the fight, right? And I thought. I thought I didn't think it was definitive because I did think Tyson Fury was doing some good work, but I I, th- I found myself like very overwhelmed by the by the notion that a guy like Francis Ngannou who never boxed zero amateur zero professional fights in boxing only an MMA fight right o- only had a professional MMA career that this dude just walked in with the heavyweight champion of the world uh, a guy who is being touted at this point in his career as probably one of the best heavyweights of all time. Bro, he just shut him down in like so, these crazy ways. I couldn't so believe here's, my eyes. I was, uh, I was watching this uh, really candid interview with uh, Mike Tyson and uh, Tyson Fury. He pops up and he's like, hey, mom, look, I'm on TV. And he's just like, you know, I'm named after this guy. He's like a living legend. Like, 
like in me being where I am, like he makes him more legendary. Like I'm proud to be named after him. It's a really endearing moment. Um, I think I was telling you uh, earlier that there's an interview with uh, Tyson Fury's dad and Mike Tyson, and that's like really good as well. Oh, um, John, yeah, Big John Fury. Yeah, yeah, and like that's a you know that's you talk about a comeuppance. Uh, I guess uh he was um. Uh, Tyson Fury was born like a preemie. He premature. Yeah, he was born at like a, he was like a pound. He was like one yeah. pound born. He said he was. Like he wasn't supposed to live hand. more than a week. And he said he's gonna be seven foot tall and the heavyweight champion of the world. Fucking profit, man. <laughs> yeah, are you gonna call that? But what's so crazy is, bro, I, like, and his story is so incredible. And like, it was like the it was really a collision of two like unbelievable sports stories, like colliding in this unbelievable way and. I mean, I know that, listen, I know that, like, everybody's got um, their opinions on, like, the crossover boxing stuff that's going on in the sport, and we won't deliberate too long on it because, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about this. But I I just thought it was important to talk about because we are going to talk a little uh, combat sports next weekend. Um, Our next episode will announce that at the end of of the pod tonight. But I just think it was an incredible moment in sports, period, that a guy like Francis with the backstory of like having, having gone through the things that he went through, such as homelessness and, you know, uh, child labor in Africa and like all of these, all of these components of like what is already a unbelievable story to like climb the ranks in the UFC and become a UFC champion over Stipe Miocic, by the way, who is also an all-time great heavyweight. And like that story should have just ended right there. And it was already a movie. Like it was already like this unbelievable story, right? Then this fucking dude basically spits in the US fa- UFC's face and says, "Like, to hell with your contract. I want like I want a fair contract, and it's not like it's partially about money, but it's also about like I want rights. I want the right to go box. I want the right to go do this. I want rights, other rights for fighters. Like, and basically right. just like as heavyweight champion was just like I'll walk, and then waits a year, and then basically does like the sunset clause or whatever was in his contract. Basically, lets him out of the contract, and everybody's just like, "Oh, you're fucked, dude!" And, and once again, people still doubting him. You're fucked. You're fucked. Mm-hmm. You're fucked. You won't get out of this now. Like, you're never gonna get a deal like that. Even if you do, you'll be making less money, and you won't be a competitive. It won't be a competitive field, and all of these criticisms. Then he lands the the fury fight. Already a victory. The fact that he's like. The contract signed. Oh yeah, it's like all the uh, all the Jake Paul fights. You sign the contract, you win. Yeah, you already won. You won the sweepstake because like right. now you're gonna make thirty million. A million dollars. Yeah, you're making millions of dollars. Right, like t- you're gonna make probably ten times what you were making in the UFC or any other promotion is gonna probably offer you. You're gonna make tens of millions of dollars. Sweepstakes over, boom, and Tyson Fury takes it because he's just like, oh, this is an easy payday. It's just like he already he could have basically shown up, got knocked out in the first round, and still won. Right, right. He's already and he's, no one would have really batted an eye. Like, oh, that no. makes sense. The fucking audacity of this man to walk into the ring, and then not not only not only potentially win the fight, but definitively knock Tyson Fury down. Right, like in it, like so. The thing is, he like almost won, but the people. No one was saying like, "Oh, he definitely lost and did bad." No one was saying that at the very nobody least. Like, if... the... Nobody expected him to even compete in this fight, dude. Right? Like, 
That's well, what's so, so absurd about what it. I what I was getting at with that uh with the candid uh Tyson Fury Mike Tyson interview is uh before Tyson Fury rolls up and he's just like all these fights he's like you know we're always talking about fights like what about like us on the same you know camera that's crazy but uh the guy asked Mike Tyson he goes uh how do you feel about um you know some of uh some of his future fr- fights in in uh prospects and then he's like well he's got to get through uh, Francis first. <laughs> yeah yeah and like, he says that very like well, tyson sin- and he says it very like sincerely and uh yeah well so the tyson thing trained in- him tyson trained him for this fight and the thing is uh mike tyson's also the one that says that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face so that's true and, listen, and if you're technically that's what happened the- like that's yeah, what that's what that was the outcome is that francis got respect early in the fight like from my perspective it was like i think I think Tyson Fury ran into like the problem. It was like, it was like a perfect storm of like what people are. Oh, when people, you know how people in the MMA boxing crossover world, they like talk a lot about like, they're always making a, there was building a defense for the MMA fighter, like in, in the build to a fight. Like here's all the, here's why it's advantageous for an MMA fighter. Well, they have smaller, they're used to getting hit with smaller gloves and they're, they're unconventional. So they're kind of awkward or that, you know, they're right. used to getting hit with smaller gloves. So maybe their chin's a little bit stronger and than they're, a boxer. They're looking for, they're looking for different tells. Like they're right. Like- exactly. There's all of these like supposed advantages that MMA fans and MMA supporters have been basically kind of like building this case for MMA fighters to go into boxing and succeed. And like, it's always been bullshit. Like you've always heard these people say these things like, Oh, like the glove thing. Or another one is like, um, another one would be like, well, boxers only, they, their chins are a little more suspect and the brain damage is worse because they, they're only getting punched in the body and the head. They're only taking strikes. They're not wrestling and stuff. So like they're, they're more likely to get knocked out because they get hit in the head more, whatever the, this is all examples, but like, Typically, what has happened with these crossover bouts is that those cases get built by MMA people, MMA media, and MMA like individuals. And then the MMA guy goes out there and looks like shit, or maybe looks good and still loses. Whatever it is, the Jake Paul fights, the Logan Paul fights, the freaking the there's more than that. There's like you have like these small promotions putting on these fights between MMA guys and their boxing and whatever. But like. Dude, Francis went out there and made those cases valid. He like credentialized all of that, all of that, like what seemed to be fodder, like dialogue from MMA people. Like, dude was awkward. Dude did have a chin. Dude could take a punch from Tyson Fury, many of them. Be- mm-hmm. And probably because he's used to getting hit with four ounce gloves instead of like the, you know, the boxing gloves. And it's like, like he basically, he, the, you know, like he, the exception is the rule, right? Like mm. he was the exception. Like he he was. He went out there and did it, and of course he is because like his story is just like we all should have saw well, that coming. So te- technically, you like uh you put any you put anyone out there, anyone's going to have like a quote unquote boxer chance. But those are arguably two of the baddest men on the planet. Like it's one two, one way or another. I wouldn't. Yeah, I guess. I'm trying to like, think. I'm trying I don't to think know of that someone I agree who's, with that anymore because at the end of the them. day, 
Yeah, but like I don't know that I hate that I hate that phraseology. I've told you this before on the pod. You don't like baddest man on the planet? No, because it's bullshit. Because the baddest man for me is like fuck the uh, put the boxing gloves down. Let's fucking like let's scrap. No, like all of it's on the table. Like if I'm so it's a so it's one of the Diaz brothers. Well, that's why MMA is like kind of closer to that. It's still not perfect, but like it's it's closer to that than boxing because it's like Tyson Fury's already said like. Like he said, leading. Like, how can this be the baddest man on the planet? When in the build to the fight, he was like, he's like, I'll have him, I'll have security chuck him out of the ring if he tries any of that fucking MMA shit. This is a boxing fight, and I'm just like, bro, how can you be the baddest man on the planet? You're like, you have to limit the tool set of your opponent, and then you still almost lost, and arguably did. Bro, Francis Ngannou is a bad motherfucker, and he well, that's he what, that's truly, what I'm saying. he truly might be, in my opinion, after that performance i don't know we, we we're, we're going too long on it to begin with but i, I just wanted to mention this dude francis ganu i genuinely think that was the sports story of the year what he did last night i, I could not believe my eyes and i think most people probably agree with that this dude is like just a just a marvel just a marvel and to do what he just did is genuinely like one of the great stories of the year in sports and, and one of the great one of the all-time great like athletic um performances period in my in my personal opinion just because of just because of what he was up against he didn't even utilize the puncher's chance it's not like so he you're, caught him you're saying you're saying so if he would have won that it would have been the craziest thing that like ever Bro, happened but let me let me throw some numbers at you okay for that fight to even go to a decision, and this isn't because like Francis has knockout power. No, this is because like how long is Tyson Fury gonna play with his food before he puts him to sleep? For that fight to even go all 10 rounds, it was like plus 800. Like, do you know how fucking crazy that is? That like not only did it go all 10 rounds, but he was on the losing Fury was yeah, on was the a, potentially losing side of it. Yeah, it was a split, like one point, right? Yeah, I mean one one of the judges had it 96-93 Fury, which is like it's not egregious, but it's wrong. In my opinion, I think it's just wrong. Um I, I, I don't mind the 95-94. Um I could uh, like 96-93 is like it's not that bad. It's not that far off. It's one extra round for, for Fury, but like I don't know. Only one man was sitting on his ass at some point in that fight, and it wasn't Francis Ngannou. Just saying. Right. But, I don't know. Incredible performance. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some some of that kind of that kind of shit. We're going to go into the sports realm next week. Um, but I don't know, Errol. Uh, what do you say? I mean, let's just should we just dive in we before we dive to. into? Yeah, I mean, this, we've got we've got only so much time, and and this film is going to demand a, a good chunk of it. So um, we're going to take a short break. Um, we're going to take a really quick break. We're going to we're going to bounce back. Coming up next on the Peripheral Views Podcast, boy, we've been waiting a long time to talk about it, and we're going to do it. Coming up next, we're talking Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror classic. We're talking Shining. Thank you. 
Okay, folks, here we go. We are diving in. This is going to be a big one. Uh, before we dive into the content of the actual film itself, Errol, I want to talk a little bit about Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. Um, I mean, the most, in my opinion, the most important. Uh, I mean, I, this is the best way I can describe him. I think he's personally, in my humble opinion, the single most important filmmaker that's ever walked the earth. Um, I mean, it, it's just it's just who he is to me. Um, what he offered the world in terms of its, um, you know, in terms of art and in terms of uh, filmmaking is is truly second to none. And I know that there are filmmakers who probably have made more money and have won more awards and maybe even a bit more influential. But as far as I'm concerned, this dude is a was such a pure artiste, like in the absolute definitional sense of the term um, and what he was going for. Um, Errol, tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship to his like filmography. I guess we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit about like like what films uh, stand out to you and what they what do they mean to you and when did you see them and you know um, hit hit the highlights for us. I think you're muted. Yeah, you're right. You're right, but you know it's okay. Um, first, first uh Stanley Kubrick film I've seen was probably The Shining, but the only thing I recalled from it was the uh, the uh, tricycle scene, and I've never been to this day. And I and I got the same feeling as I was watching it again. So jealous of someone. I've never <laughs> yeah. been so jealous. I want to do that so bad. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool because he's just free. The man's just he's the just, kid's just free. Chilling. Yeah. Um, but after that, the next one I seen probably way too early. Full Metal Jacket, nice. Um, Clockwork Orange. Um, really like that one. Saw that a little later in life, and then um, I watched two thousand one uh, Space Odyssey on an airplane, and it was like the fucking craziest experience I've Interesting. had. Like, okay. Cause it was like the whole like I had like the humming of like the plane going on there. I would look out and just see like the the uh, the curvature of like you know like the Earth, like you know what I'm saying, like just yeah, the, like just the horizon like... and like you're just up there. <laughs> and then as well, I was like, this is kind of wild. And I was like, well, they're like out there in space, and I'm like, I'm just like up above the ground. I don't know. It was you're like halfway. You you made it like yeah. halfway, right? Yeah, not really, it, but like yeah. It, but so like the main thing is like so in that movie, like it's it's scary because like, um, the danger is like literally all around them. Like they're only safe because of the the uh you know the spaceship well yeah and that but uh if uh the spaceship like decompresses or anything like you just you're done and the same thing with like an airplane like outside is like crazy forces that you're not meant to deal with and then the inside is just safe and cozy just like it's meant to be on like the inside of that spaceship they had like crazy meals going and this isn't that it's almost like nothing was even different but like it was like uh it's inhabitable you're in a place where you shouldn't be yeah, I mean that that film. I mean that's going to be somewhere down the line for uh, the podcast. I would imagine that that's. It's just incredible. I guess looking back at his filmography, um, what I think is most important, more like unique about it. I guess is probably the best word to describe it. 
is simply that his frequency, like it's very rare. Let's see, one, how many films did he direct? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen films in forty-five years. Forty-seven years, technically. Across forty like that's abs- that's very low. Like that's but I, I, the products I guess I, I don't know. I think it's hard to say that like each film um is so carefully constructed because he does have some misses in there, right? Like it's not this is not a perfect catalog of films. I've seen misses like uh like Barry Lyndon is beautiful. Like it's a gorgeous film. Like the cinematography is like and I've I've only seen it once, but it's just so it just doesn't work for me. It's not my kind of thing, man. I'm just not that period piece stuff is like, it's gotta be the right period for me. And I do think there's like a ton of talent in that film. And like, obviously the way it looks is, is very beautiful. And, um, but like anybody who there's nobody walking around who's like, yeah, my favorite Kubrick film was Barry Lyndon. Like bullshit. No, it's not. There's no way. If you're saying that, like, cause, it, cause all the beauty does not, it doesn't compute with like, you get the same beauty from 2001 a space odyssey but with like he it's all he hits more of the right notes with with his other films so like there's some misses in there so he's not a perfect filmmaker but it does seem that like he would truly master the craft of the films that he did um get right so like obviously um have not seen the killing which is on my list it's i actually think it is available it's pretty easy to find the first two films fear and desire and killer's kiss i have definitely not seen um the killing is the one that i've actually i think it's pretty accessible and i actually think it's like incredibly uh well received so that's that's on my list paths of glory i've seen once i was probably a little too young to digest it in the right way spartacus same story like spartacus is, is a all-time great film for a lot of people and a lot of people grew up with it and like that's a very important film but people don't even i think i don't think they really remember that it was a kubrick film um i neither is yeah i mean you've heard spartacus like how many times has it been parodied and everything else but I, i think people forget that that's a kubrick film and it is a very important film it's um, I have seen it in chunks. I, I can't say I've actually like truly sat down. It's a long film and it's um, I mean, that was kind of a, his big Oscar thing, right? Like this is what's, a, this is such a, a, such a strange thing for Cooper. Cause that like, he really doesn't have big, like sweeping Oscar winning films, even though he's heralded as one of the great filmmakers of all time. I don't know that. He's so, really... I'm so sorry, I go th- ahead. No, no, you're, you're okay. I kind of just cut you off. I think, I think the movie is Spartacus if it's the right one that I'm thinking about. But um, if it is, yeah, it has to be because um, he does a lot of like panning around with like the set and uh, like a uh, like place. Um, it's very theatrical and like when you see people um, when you see people on a stage like during a play like their stage presence like they're you're supposed to be in a certain place like for a reason. Um. If I'm not mistaken, there's a scene like where they're talking uh, to like some of like the other people in the council, and it's like panning around the chamber, and like every time it like pans around to shift the scene, it's just like putting other people in different like orientations, like due to or like based on their like importance or like you know like the background and stuff, and like the way it just like sweeps and stuff, like you can 
very much see that evolve until it gets like like 2001 space odyssey blows your mind like at least it will like when you realize that they didn't do that with any cgi or anything that dude was just yeah like the, the fucking camera right the, the the audacity for that film to like still work today based on practical effects is like yeah that's that, that's absurd that's just that shouldn't happen and um and it and, and you watch the film and I actually just I I had just viewed it probably well I'll tell you the story about that film for me is that like I've I like as a young man like I'm talking probably twelve or thirteen I would attempt because it had all this lore around it I'm just like you know how it is like you want to take it on but sometimes it's like it's like a big book like you you know you don't read um you know you don't read Oliver Twist or like you know, uh, Ulysses or any of these like massive books, you don't digest them and just dive in and like, Oh, I guess we're reading this today. It's like, they're <laughs> kind of scary and intimidating. And that was one, that was like a piece of art for me that I was like, kind of like, I had to watch it in chunks and I'd start it and I'd start it. And I just, I couldn't really, I couldn't eke my way through it the way I wanted to. It was just very like, it just wasn't grabbing me. And I felt, I, I felt like I was like too dumb. You know what I mean? Like, you know how film can do that. Like it's, it's so big. That it's like, man, I don't, I'm not, this is not grabbing me. So I'm just going to walk away. Like maybe I'm just not ready. And I did that with that film. And I'm actually really happy. I took that approach with the film. I was like, at the time I thought, man, I'm just not like, I'm just not ready for this. Maybe I'm not smart enough to like understand what's going on here or what he's going for. So I would just walk away from the film. But I was actually, that was actually a really mature decision on my, on my behalf. And I really paid, it paid dividends down the road because when I did finally, I took like a few years off from trying it. And then when I was like 16, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And like, holy shit. I would, I watched the film. I would never forget this. I watched the film like really early in the wee hours of the morning. Right. It was still like dark out when I started it. Like, and I watched the film and it finally did take, right. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like it finally sunk its teeth in. You know how, you know how the film does that. Like it'll, it'll kind of get you like, oh shit. The fascination is right. so deep and I can't take my eyes off of what's happening. And I'm I'm getting this. I'm understanding the artistic um, delivery system here. And I watched the whole film front to back. I don't think I blinked. <laughs> like, I don't think I actually even blinked. Like, it felt like I didn't blink the entire film. And I just, like, melted into this into this film. And, bro, I swear to God in my life, I marked my, I, you know, I, I swear on my kid's life. That movie was over. It's two hours and, like, 40 minutes or whatever. I turned that bitch off and I turned it, I turned it right back on, started again, watched it in full the same way, twice in a row. I had to. I was like addicted. It was so bizarre. I, I'd never done that with a film like that. You know how it is like with artistic, artistically driven films like that, where like you kind of want to like you want to drink your wine slowly and kind of digest it and swish around with it a little bit and let it kind of uh you know serenade your mind in, in a certain way. Like I was just not about that. I was like, no, I need to go back into the fucking. I need to go back into the labyrinth. Want to mainline it? Yeah, yeah. I want to figure out what's. I want to. I want to get in there and start like rubbing elbows with this film again. And it was, um, it was well worth it. And I've probably seen it five or six times since. And um, that one, that one truly, like once again, this guy Kubrick, man. It's like, and I know we're we're gonna be talking a lot about The Shining, you know, over the next the rest of the podcast. But I, I think it's important to like really pay homage and uh, talk about Kubrick extensively a little bit here before we get rolling, just because of what a master he is and what his catalog, um, you know, where some of, and by the way, like, you know, to tie it to the shining, you, I mean, you, you would agree with this. There's a lot of 2001 in the shining, right? Like you, you see it all over the film in like these very small ways, but like they're, 
they're not so small when you're familiar with Kubrick's work, right? Right. Yeah. It's um the uh, the camera work like in general. It's really uh really like smooth. Like when it's like following people, it's very um. He's almost like a like I don't. Uh, he's he's almost like a uh, like a gritty Wes Anderson at times. Oh yeah, Wes Anderson yeah. has well, it's this, it's the symmetry, right? Like that's the Wes right. Anderson stuff is the symmetry, like where every shot is. He we'll get into some of those details. A, yeah, but like, he always likes to make it kind of look like a picture. But everybody's like, centered, right? Everybody's centered. Yeah. If there's a person in the shot, it's, they're usually center of frame, and like there's usually symmetry on each side of the shot. And there's some unique shots there, like the first shot that came, came to comes to mind when I'm thinking about The Shining is like. Um, you remember when Jack's like he's like dreaming at the table, and then he like falls to the floor when Wendy comes to wake him up. Mm-hmm. And like Kubrick makes this weird decision, and he makes another one when when Jack's like wake when he comes to in the in the food pantry. Um, and you can see this in some of the folks listening. Like if you're looking for some rare behind the scenes footage, like there's a uh, there's on YouTube. Just type in Kubrick's uh, Kubrick's The Shining rare behind the scenes footage. You can watch Kubrick basically lay down on his back, and he's he just makes this impromptu. It almost seems impromptu that like he's got his his scope uh, his scope lens that's gonna that he's trying to get the shot with the scope lens, and he like lays down on his back and kind of looks up at at Jack Nicholson and is like, oh, this is the shot. I'm gonna point the camera up at you and lean your head up against the food pantry and start and tell Wendy the bad news about the snowcat or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like he does a similar thing when Jack's dreaming at the table and Wendy wakes him up and he like falls to the floor and tells Wendy about the dream. And this dude like makes it seems like almost kind of the same decision making with the shot. He he points the camera through the legs of the table, so you're on the floor with Jack. And it's like oh, little things yeah, like that. Yeah. You, you can almost and he doesn't even well, that bother. too. That too, and whenever it's um, whenever it's uh, on his son, you're uh, you're always at like floor level, level, right? You're at his you're at his height, and it makes the it also makes the hotel feel bigger. Um, but like that shot, like through the table, he doesn't even bother to, to like, it's fuzzed out a little bit, but you can still see a part of the, he doesn't even, it doesn't even care that like part of the leg of the table is in the shot. He wants you to know that's where the shot's coming from. It's It's almost like, it's such an intimate moment that like, we shouldn't even be there. Yeah. You're kind of, you're kind of like sneak. Yeah, exactly. That, I think that's kind of maybe what he was going for. Like he wants you to be like the. You know, you're you're not supposed it's to. It's almost. It, it's like we are. Uh, what his name is a. Uh, it's a uh, because I always just think Tony. What's his What's his dang name? Danny. Boy. Danny. Yeah, Danny. Um, it's almost like we're Danny. Like. Yeah, we're like, like peering through the. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like uh, he, a lot of the camera work that this sits on the floor. Um. All right, well, we'll get we'll get into the, some of those dirty details. I do want to go Jumping all the way through. Around. Yeah, I know we're doing it, I, 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 folks. I, I apologize in advance. We're probably going to be doing a lot of that with this film, especially once we start actually talking directly about The Shining. Um, once we're done, kind of getting through the Stanley Kubrick stuff, but it's going to be tough for us to stay chronological. We'll do the best we can. So just bear with us on that front. But we're gonna we're gonna talk about the film as organically as we can because we both, let, you know, we're huge fans of the film. Um, a Clockwork Orange, obviously. Do I, I know a lot of people have a ton of problems with that film, and I I do understand that. I'm like pretty sympathetic to like why people are like, yeah, Clockwork Orange is like aged really poorly, and it's it's pretty horrifying. Um, I personally love it. I personally love the film. I think it's. I actually think it's one of his 
one of his masterpieces. Um, yeah, but you also just used to go what you call debauching all the time. So of course you liked it. Debauchery. This is this is no, slanderous, go, sir. Saying you would go debauching. Debauching. Listen, the the debauchery of the film is is obviously. No, I'm, not, I'm saying um the the film in itself is like you know like oh like a bit of the ultra violence is a bunch of just goons going around of course you like it because that was your youth yeah i was a goon i mean i wasn't doing the things that are happening in this in the clockwork born no, no i'm just but i was a goon little, i'm just saying they did a little debauchery yeah a little mischievism yeah, a little mischievism little it little, was all uh, you yeah, all the way up until the part part where we're like home invading and like and sexually assaulting and and raping women. I think that oh, was yeah, part, didn't that was the part I was like, yeah, I think I, I'm not quite relating to this part of the film, but you know the. Uh, but just like being like a hooligan, you know how cool yeah, everybody listen every, was to me. Yeah, kids, kids go through that. Kids, kids do that kind of thing. I was um, just trying to point it all at you, like I wasn't. Ready yeah, I was gonna say like like you have. I was waiting for you to be like, dude, how do you even? What are you talking about? That was your idea. <laughs> I'm not going to spin it around on you. No, I'm um, proud. no, there's some like the, the debauch. It goes beyond debauchery, obviously in a clockwork orange, it gets pretty horrific. And, and like, yes, like, um, well, that's, that's an interesting way. And, and we'll, well talk I, so we can I, talk about the film. It's a complicated I, film. There's I, more to it than this, that what I will leave, uh, uh, clockwork orange with if we, uh, cause I mean, we could stay on it, but, uh, what I got from that is, um, at like, who's the worst person? You know what I mean? Because like the uh, at the end, that treatment's like meant for good, but is it really like who's the bigger monster towards the end of the story? Like you could in you could have all the intent for good, and like because yeah. that's the thing too. This guy's doing a bunch of crap the whole time and just a terrible person. You end up relating to him. You're like, oh, he's kind of cool. He's kind of neat. Yeah, he's like interesting and like he, yeah. like he's such a horrible person. It seems, and, it and seems like he's almost misguided. They intentionally, yeah, but they still like satirically make you feel bad for him, and then you're like, oh wait, he's like a rapist and like a horrible human, and then like, but they they do the thing. Well, the, the message of the film is largely tackling like the MK Ultra stuff and like, uh, you know, uh, lobotomies and stuff that they were doing, right. experimental stuff, like all that stuff is like, uh, it's in there, it's in the book. I've read the book by Anthony Burgess, um, and it, it's a tough read, but I actually thought it was kind of fun to read because, um, it's that's one of those books that is actually fun to read after you've seen the film because you kind of know how the the Cockney accent goes, and the film is in. <laughs> I'm serious. The film is, or the the book is actually in. It's purely written in the in the Cockney language. Like it's it's a kind of developed language for the book. It's like very intense Cockney, but it's also a little inventive about like the terminologies and stuff. But like you read the book, and it's actually like it's kind of cool to read because it's it's you you're reading it and you under it's English, so you understand it. But it's also like they he re, he has to repeat a lot of the like the ultra violence thing is an example of that, and there, there's a million examples of it, but as the book progresses, you get more, more and more familiar with the terminology. And then the book gets more fun to read because you're understanding like a, a new language. You become a part of the crew. Right. Um, Clockwork Orange, not the only controversial film he made. I'm going to push, I'm going to actually jump back to 1962. He made Kubrick made Lolita, um, which is another like very, uh, very complicated and it's not complicated. It's fucking gross. Like the film, the film and the book, it's a Russian novel. It's about, um, a grown man falling in love with like a 14 year old girl and i heard i heard the book was good yeah I, I've, heard, I've heard the film is good too like i just I, i'm not going there i just don't really want to go there because i feel like 
Um, you think there's a know. better medium to get a story across? Yeah, it's just like, I just don't under, I don't understand why we have to even, why, why is this, I don't need, I understand, like, it's important to kind of tackle moral quandaries and, like, moral gray areas, but for me, this is just like, especially now in 2023, it's not really a gray area at all, um, and I, I get that it maybe it was more of a gray area back in the whenever the novel was written. Not so much taboo 60s. anymore. So much it, as like just like straight up criminal. Like. Yeah, like like demonized. <laughs> yeah, like maybe that. I think we're. At, I think we figured this one out. Like like grown men should probably. Be, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, a, that's. A, I think we figured this. Yeah, like yeah, yeah I, I think we got the answer here. Like grown men should probably just pursue. Grown not men. a lot of nuance to. You yeah, know. not not a, the gray area has been has been shaded here. I think we're good. Yeah. Um, so like I, I don't I don't doubt that there's some artistic value there I'm sure and I'm sure Kubrick I know he made some adjustments to the script to make the girl a little bit older but she's still a teenager and I, I I'm not interested really in seeing what's going on with that film but anyway um, Doctor Strange Love I definitely got to mention that fucking amazing um, that one's another like that's in the catalog obviously some people some folks might even argue that that's his best film. Um, certainly as funniest, um, unless you're counting the first <laughs> 45 minutes of Full Metal Jacket. Um, but yeah, like Dr. Strange, I love Peter Sellers, just just tearing it up. Unbelievable film. Really, really funny. Still holds up to like hasn't lost a beat. Really fascinating watch and um, super influential. A, a unbelievable film. Like uh, only seen it a couple of times, but like, I mean, there's no fighting in the war room. So like that's all that need to be said. Um, uh, you mentioned Full Metal Jacket. Um, my first introduction to Kubrick, surprisingly, is actually Eyes Wide Shut. Um, the last film he made, like, which actually I think came out even before, like, uh, after he died. Um, which is like, Jesus, man, there's a lot to talk about with that film, but, um, I know that film from being a child and waking up at fucking midnight and throwing on the old HBO, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of naked boobs everywhere on my tv and i'm like so you're oh sh- like nice I'm like hmm what's this movie eyes wide shut okay i'm gonna watch this until the boobs go away and then the boobs go away and i'm no longer and then i just walk well that i remember seeing a bunch of that movie like way too young right like probably like i don't know 11 or 12 or something and being like what is going on with this movie and why does this movie it was such an ir- weird i think a lot of people had this experience because they did tend to air this movie at night um and the movie is all about dreams Right. Like the whole thing, the whole film is like about it's supposed to feel like a dream. And he uses like Christmas lights and all these like weird. uh, I think it's a masterpiece of a film, too. I think it's a genuinely great film. Uh, I know a lot of people are not huge fans of it, but um, I personally think it's one of his better films. I think it's like in the it's in the upper echelon for me. Um, And like it's weird to like have a relationship with that movie, like waking up in the middle of the night to watch it as a child on, you know, inappropriately because it's it's very dreamlike. Like the whole movie feels like a dream. And then you, you know, when it's affiliated with the middle of the night like that, it's actually kind of like it it really enhances the viewing experience. Um, And every time I watch the film, it it genuinely just feels that way. Um, Great film. Have you seen Eyes Wide Shut, Errol? No. But I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, there's it's been memed like everything else that Kubrick's ever done. Everything's become a, a meme, and we'll talk about The Shining and its relationship to to memeing. But um, yeah, so that's that's Kubrick's filmography. Um, I think we can probably move um, away from from um, just just him as a director. We'll talk a lot about him in in terms of you know what he did with The Shining. Um, but I think it's time we dive into The Shining. What do you think? 
Oh, yeah. I'm ready. All right. We'll take one more break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the absolute masterpiece, the horror classic, Stephen King adaptation, Stanley Kubrick's 1980, The Shining. We'll be right back. Thank you for the patience, uh, listeners. Let's do this thing. We are diving in. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. It's a masterpiece. There's a bunch to say about the film. Um, it's it's an absolute masterpiece, and we're going to dive all the way into that. So, um, 1980 horror film produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, he was it was co-written um, with Diane Johnson. It's based on the Stephen King 1977 novel of the same name. Um, it is, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, Danny Lloyd, Danny Lloyd, uh, cinematography done by John Alcott, edited by Ray Lovejoy, uh, music by the aforementioned, um, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. We have a full, uh, just to, just to harken back to that. We do have a full episode, um, on our feed, on our website. It should be in the, uh, all the platforms, a full biography on the story of Wendy Carlos, an absolutely fascinating story, um, background, a biography about her life as a um, just a beacon and an icon and pillar of uh, synthesized music, like truly a, a pioneer. Um, so for anybody who's listen- interested in the music of The Shining, please feel free to dive back to that biography. It's a really fascinating story about about her um experience professional experience and her experience a little bit on on the film of the shine with the shining and um just a and at a clockwork orange for that matter too i believe she did the film the music for that as well um so check that out if you get an opportunity uh moving forward production companies this was pro, uh, the production company for the film was the producer circle company the peregrine productions and hawk films distributed by warner brothers it was released May 23, 23rd in 1980 in the United States, October 2nd, 1980 in the UK. Uh, it uh, had on a budget of <laughs> $19 million budget, only made $47.3 million. So not exactly a, a box office hit, right, Errol? I mean, I mean it, it doubled its money, but like, I, it, I mean, I guess we could start there. Like the reception of the film is a little strange, right? It didn't exactly get completely um embraced upon well, release. so so that and it's kind of like uh how do you how do you market this what do you you know what i mean like well, the trailer to- is very simple it's like the trailer is basically 
I mean, the trailer is very iconic now, but like everything about the film is iconic now. But when the trailer came out, I think people were a little, you know, confused as to what they were getting into. Clearly a horror film. We got Jack Nicholson, who's like one of the biggest stars in the world at the time. But it's basically the trailer is just blood flowing from the elevator um, and an ominous voice describing, uh, talking about The Shining, like, you know, introducing the film. So, I I mean, I guess I, I, maybe the public just didn't know what they were getting. Right. But uh, yeah, tough, tough box office, exp- uh, you know, reception for the film uh, didn't really matter, to be completely frank, obviously, because over the course of time, the film was probably made, you know, tens of millions of dollars beyond that. Just in, you know, it's, you know, you're talking about royalties and airtime and it's been on TV forever. It's it's just it's a uh, it's a staple in the horror movie industry, too. Right. I mean, well, you don't get and just a. Uh, um just like it's referenced like everywhere yeah i was gonna say and i'll I'll mention this now i guess this is as good as time as any but like i actually think the one thing that hurts this movie is how often it's kind of mocked not not maybe not mocked but like on the internet it's like the way it's memed and it's been you know the just the its presence in the internet sphere and social media has actually not helped even before that like i i heard the phrase like here's johnny before, like, you know... Yeah, it got parodied in films, right. There were other, like, spoof movies that, like, kind of took it on and, and made fun of it a little bit. And I just... I don't know. I was watching it tonight with this... From a, this kind of newish lens about, like... From the perspective of, like, man, how did this become so, like, somewhat comical? Um, some of these moments are a little funnier than I, like, want them to be. And I, I just, I don't, this is, it's not to be critical of the film. It's not really the film's fault. It's more the way that like culture received it. Um, I don't think the film was, the, the film has aged well, but it hasn't aged well in the digital age. Right. I, I think that may be the way to put it. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be hard to make this movie now. It would be. Yeah. It would it it's, there's too many moments of like absurdity, like that kind of work because of how intense the film is and, it evokes like, um, and and you gotta you gotta mention at least at some point tonight. We, this was always gonna have to get brought up, but like there really isn't a whole lot of action in the first two thirds of the film, or even three quarters of the film, right? Like there's not not a whole lot truly in terms of the plot. Like nobody's really doing anything ex- except like experiencing. The only thing that's happening is uh, Jack's just getting more annoyed. Yeah, he's just getting angrier and angrier and. Um, we'll get into some. And let's of the... be real. Like it, I mean, I get it. It's the hotel, but it, it's like for no reason. Like he's just kind of an asshole. Yeah, he's um, a bit of a dick. Bit I of guess. Dick sure. I guess it was different in the book where like the hotel was making him like a a jerk. But like, yeah, let's he... talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about yeah. Stephen King and like kind of like the the uh, the differences between. I have read the book. Um, it's been a long time since I read the book. I've seen the film obviously many more times than I, I've only read the book once. But I've I've seen the film. I don't know how many times, probably 15 to 20 times total Um, many. And then obviously another 20 times in parts like, so like, I don't know what's what, but I do recall that there is some major, major differences. I do remember like the book being a lot more, um, a lot more centered around. It was a little bit um, slower too. I remember like, which is funny to say. It almost has to be because if you're going to, um, I I think it's the reason why, uh, they didn't go with Jack being a good guy at the beginning of the movie, then slowly just being like the hotel getting to him. Cause you almost have to build that rapport with the audience and like the, 
the family themselves to have that, like, yeah. that slow you, burn. So you're like, oh, it's I think Kubrick. I think Kubrick kind of wanted you to have a little bit of reservations about Jack going in. Right. And which is kind of the backstory, which is, I think, I believe if memory serves me, I believe the backstory of him, like hurting Danny um, from being drunk and like coming home and like ripping his arm. Um, I believe that is uh, in the book as well. Um, I will say this, uh, the pacing of the book. So uh, I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about Stephen King and his relationship with the, with the film. He obviously very publicly does not appreciate the film. He does not think that it was a good adaptation. In fact, that's why um, he and Kubrick did not have a good relationship whatsoever in this whole process. And it sounds like for the most part, he, this is part of the reason why it was, it was made again for TV somewhat horribly. I watched the TV movie years ago and it, it was bad, man. Like it was really bad. And I think that that was actually closer to, you know, I think Stephen King was a little more hands-on with that production and it was bad, man. It is freaking bad. And I haven't seen it in probably 15, 20 years. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. And it, 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 it what I remember of it was, was like, this is not even worth watching it on its own, even in comparison to the, the film. Um, have you seen the the TV version? Mm-mm. No, yeah, it, it's a lot more about the Shining stuff. Like, there's just a ton more of content circling that that involves Danny and his experience um, with the telekinesis involved in the Shining, right? Like the the Shining activity, we'll call it. Um, but the gift, yeah, the gift, and doesn't really particularly work for me. I mean, um. But King was not a fan of the film, um, and I understand that it's his it's his novel. I, I can I can appreciate that, but um, from my perspective, it's like I think at a certain point, because Stanley wanted to make his film and it wanted it was an adaptation of of this novel. I think that there was a certain point where Stephen King was basically he couldn't find a good word to say about the film, and I don't really think he was trying to. You know what I mean by that? Like, I think that he was kind of publicly shitting on the film, even in places that he might not have like. Right. (sighs) Like he was, he, uh, he just wanted to, um, he was upset with how it went by. So he wasn't going to give it any kind of credit. Yeah. Even where it might've deserved it. Like for instance, like this, there's a story, um, there's a story about the way Kubrick like decided on adapting this for the, for the, you know, for the film or for the, uh, the big screen is that he basically was his process would that be that, according to the story that I, I read online, he would start reading a book. Um, he would start reading a novel, start reading it. And then his secretary would hear like a thud against the wall. Boom. And then another 25 minutes or an hour or so. And then a thud against the wall. Boom. And you would know that was the sound of him, like throwing the book against the wall. Like not this, not for me, not for me. Like he'd read, 20 pages and be like, Nope, not for me. I'm not, I'm not interested. And then he would just throw the book at the wall. Well, apparently the secretary knew that when he, when she didn't hear that thud against the wall that like, Oh, he must be, this must be, he must be interested. It's like been four hours and I haven't heard a thud. So he's reading something. And when she entered the room, lo and behold, it was the shining. Now, Stephen King came out and said that this, that he didn't buy this story and it sounded gimmicky. And the reason he didn't buy the story was that the the book is slowly paced is too slowly paced for that to be true, and I'm just like, bro, I don't give me a break, man. Like I've read that book, and he is right. It is it is slow. It is a lot slower paced in the film, and we'll talk about the pacing in the film as we move along. But like, give me a break. Like, 
that does not make that story implausible just because just because the the book is slow like slowly he still read the book obviously he adapted right. it into a film so like are you implying that he never read the book because it's slowly paced and he would have never like he he should have got bored with it and thrown it against like I don't really understand the, the I, this is what I mean with Stephen King he doesn't that, he doesn't want to take the compliment no he doesn't he want he he doesn't want he he wants to distance himself from this film and it's at a adaptive um content or it's I mean probably after all is said and done not a not a bad approach. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, well, I don't know. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about the details about, like, the production and some of the complications and such. But um, let's talk about the opening shot, Errol. Let's let's dive in. I mean, uh, the film opens in with one of the most beautiful overhead shots. Kubrick in a helicopter just flying overhead. Um, aimed down at what I believe is um, the Rocky Mountains. Um, I actually think it's the Northern Rockies. I read somewhere a long time ago. I haven't, I didn't, wasn't able to substantiate this, but it looks like it's like the uh, Glacier Park, Northern Montana, is where it was filmed. Um, I've heard other, I've heard other locations, but I believe that was the location that I, um, that I came across, and it's like stunning. Um, but uh, one of the interesting tidbits I actually noticed, though, is that so like, don't you find it? It's a little strange that he uses the color font for the shine for the shining when it appears on screen. Did you notice that like teal blue mm-hmm. and how weird that is? Um, that is paid homage to by um, by Jordan Peele in the opening of uh, Get Out. Get Out kind of. Oh. Yeah. Get Out kind of opens the same way where like it's like um it's a shot of nature as a backdrop. And then that same color says get out. Um, and I think that was a little shot, little shot across the bow to the shining. Um, but, uh, um, I, I really like the opening, um, on top of like the eeriness that's being conveyed. Like you, like you said, it's just nature. That's all you see. They're just going deeper and deeper into nature, deeper and deeper into seclusion. You don't see any houses. You don't see any other cars. You might see a couple other cars, but they're heading the opposite way. And yeah, that was the thing I noticed too. That uh, I didn't notice in the film, but I noticed in the research that people noticed that like there's never a car going the same. They never show a vehicle going the same direction no, as them. It's just them. It's them going. It's everybody going. Well, actually, makes sense to the plot too because everybody's right. leaving. Um, everybody's leaving the overland. But, but here's the thing too: as you uh, as you go in, it looks bright as hell. True. Yes. It's, it's broad like beautiful. Daylight. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also. Um, I think the I think what he's what he's going for. So like that shot, there's a shot of I believe it's called let me look it up. I want to make sure I get this right. I believe it's called Logan's Pass, right? Uh, let me see if I want to make sure the, is that the Donner thing? The Donner party? No. No, no, no. There's a shot in the in the shining. Um I want to make sure that it's actually correct. Yeah, there's a shot of Logan's Pass. Okay, yes, perfect. It's cutting to Mount Hood. Okay, so there's a shot. That I got this right, and I thought I did. It, it, I was basing this off memory, but I want to make sure. So some of this was shot on going to the Sun Road, right? Going to the Sun Road is like a very famous drive in northern Montana. And I've known this because it's something I've always wanted to do. It's like a it's a personal goal of mine. And I, I tied it to The Shining years ago, and I was never 100% sure. But the going to the Sun Road um, – it's it's this beautiful drive that goes that leads to Logan Pass. Logan Pass, uh, quote, this is from Wikipedia, one Native American legend concerns 
that the de- the deity sour spirit who came down from the sun to teach the blackfeet the basics of hunting so like they have this very like a uh, dogmatic relationship with logan's past and so everything you're kind of seeing is is and and this this is why i think he opens with like the nature of where the overlook is located is you're just seeing native land right like you're seeing native oh. american land and my interpretation of logan pass if i remember it correctly is that People can the natives considered Logan Pass. It was like this beautiful sheer rock granite cliffside that like stuck out. It's like it's it sticks out. It's one of the highest points in in Glacier Park, and it's very like you look at it, and it's very it sticks out very beautifully, and it's 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 heavenly, right? And the natives used to consider it, as far as I remember, I'm 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 being um being somewhat anecdotal here because I'm actually I'm not gonna substantiate this in real time but i believe that the the natives actually considered it like the pathway to heaven which is like so there it would be like they're in purgatory yeah like it, it, you're getting to you're, you're picking up what i'm putting down so I, I i truly think that the goal here for kubrick was to like show the land in which the natives live like i think this is his like i think the whole I, I, you know how there's theories and, and we'll get into some of the theories, but like there's the moon landing theory and that he filmed it. And then there's obviously the native American genocidal um, symbolism through the film that I don't even think is theory. Would you, I want to hear what you, th- what you have to say about like the genocidal symbolism in the film? Do you actually think it's overt? Do you think it's, sub- I think it is. I think it's overt. You think it's intentional too, right? Like it's clearly yeah. intentional. Yeah, absolutely. He's going for it. Like that's what yeah, he's aiming the, at. To the to the point where um a lot of the stuff in the background on the hotel is it's still Indian, like uh, like um, it's like a Native American like designs and stuff in the uh, in the stained glass on the walls. There's a point um, not going too far ahead, but uh, it's kind of towards the middle. But when a uh, Jack is just throwing the ball. He's just like whipping it at like a mural and it's like a Native American mural, like further, like, you know, desecrating the joke. And it's like it is a joke. They killed everyone. Then they put that up as a desecration. Then he's further like just like throwing it at it. Like it's just like a double spit in the face. Yeah, he's like he's using like an American sports toy to like uh, to just like literally play with with and um. And in the middle of the whole thing, like, in the beginning at the first shot, like, you have, like, so, you know, it's on the Indian burial ground, If I mean, after you watch it, but, like, uh, the whole thing has, like, the Native American kind of designs, and then there's just a, uh, there's a United States flag just planted in the middle of the, uh, of the place there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of that. center. And they also represent like um, there. I was reading about some of like the color palette choices. Like all of the main characters are basically at one point or another. Each one, uh, Jack, Danny, and and Wendy, uh, played by Jack Nicholson, and uh, I can't remember Danny's the actor Danny's uh, Danny Lloyd's name. Maybe it is Danny Lloyd. Uh, yeah, because he's Danny Torrance, and then the actor is Danny Lloyd um, and Shelley Duvall. At any one point in time, each and one of them is w- at least wearing one of the three colors of red, white, and blue. Um, because they represent obviously the they represent well, European, American European settlers, right? And I, I I just think that you know there's a lot of theories on the film, but like if I can be blunt, like I honestly think the film is very straightforward 
as a basic it's a basic story it's like poltergeist in a lot of ways but just with a hotel and obviously a lot more like artistically um nuanced and ambiguous but like yeah the film is just it's basically this hotel represents american um imperialism it was built on a native american burial ground the ghosts continue to haunt the place and claim the lives of the caretakers that stay here um time and time again they claim their souls and like i think that's like the basic premise of the film and you know what else is crazy too like they said uh before there were like jet setters like a lot of like the important people went there like presidents presidents right other people but it seems that the hotel only claims the ghosts of the or the souls of uh, those who care for the hotel in isolation, like the caretakers. Because right, that's like the Grady story. Like Grady, Grady is the guy. Um, like uh, what's what's Delbert Grady? He's he was the caretaker before Jack, and he's passing along. Um, and we'll get into some of those. I hate to hold off on it because we're kind of naturally getting there, but. Um, I don't know. What's your theory about? Um, I mean, what what theories about the film stand out to you that seem worth talking about or worth validating? So I do think, like more than anything, it is just like a nice homage to the uh, Tower series, as much as Stephen King doesn't like it. But I feel like it does fit that, like very, very out in the open. Um, and uh, like, but more subtly, I think it's a a nice. Uh, um it's so it's like a nice indication of like uh like vices and whatnot so you have jack who is just a a jerk of a person but like he he like you know he oh he accidentally like hurt his son or whatever but he says in the beginning when he's doing the interview he was a teacher like he at one point was able to deal with kids at one point was at least trusted like to a degree granted it was back in the day so like you know he get the ruler at them but like still trusted with their lives and whatnot to to some uh to some uh you know degree and uh like they they're saying like the hotel is evil and like so jack is a jerk a really bad person but he felt like you know terrible for doing it to the degree where he's like i'll stop uh i'll stop drinking he's like if i drink again you can just leave me um he's like he knew that his vice was uh going to cause him to bring other people more pain so he didn't want to do that he was on the mend at least you know at least for what it seemed um all it took was him going to that hotel and then he didn't even have the vices there but he just like wanted to have them and that uh the evil hotel you know it just uh abided it it just like let him do that but all it took was just the idea of the stuff not even like you know, the actual stuff filled with booze and whatnot. And then no, I think, it, no, here's, see, I, I have a different theory. Okay. This is a little more ghostly. And I, I was, I was just talking about this and I'm glad we're just going to go there because, and this jumps ahead in the film. So you're talking about the, the gold room, right? The mm-hmm. first encounter with the gold room where he walks in. Um, I, I believe the sequence goes like Danny shows up in like the main lobby when, uh, um, uh, Wendy's talking to Jack in the main lobby and then Danny shows up and he's got marks on his neck and Wendy's like, how could you son of a bitch? Like how, how dare you like hurt him again? Like, 
right. can't believe you would do this or whatever. And like he, right before, well, he's uh, he's talking. He was sleeping. This is right. This is right after the dream, right? right. She, he, he's like, he just wakes up from the dream and he's just like staring at her, like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't do that. And mm-hmm. they just leave. And then like the neck, it cuts over and he's. And he's now like walking up the hallway, and he's just kind of like shucking him, shucking off the the moment he just went through. Like he's pissed off. He's just like he can't believe that she thinks he did that again or whatever. And then he goes into the gold room, and I think this is the most pivotal scene in the film. And this is I'm glad we're gonna go right here because I'm actually gonna counter what your theory was there. And I actually think so. He goes up to the bar and to describe to, to listeners just to so they understand where we're at. He sits down at the bar and he and. The first thing he says is, God, I'd give anything for a drink. And then the next you know, he sentence, says, he, he says, I'll, uh, I'd sell my soul. I'd give my soul for just a glass of beer, right? And then he's got his hands over his face, over his eyes. And then his eyes, he drops his hands from his eyes. And then there's a bartender there and, a, and an entire bar full of, for, full of alcohol now, full of bottles of liquor and, and bourbon and whiskey and scotch and vodka. You think he it. actually sold his soul? That's what I think. I th- and you watch no 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 but, but you watch him do it. So like he he barters and he's kind of like uh mingling with the bartender for the barkeep for a moment. And then is served the bourbon and um regardless of like you know money or whatever like the bar- the barkeep tells him like uh your credit's good here or whatever. Which is right. to me, it's just like, oh, of course your credit's good here because now Which you're is, indebted you soul. because you, your your soul is what was being purchased. And then the reason I think this is true is because he takes the bourbon, right? And most most people watching on a surface level would watch him like throw back this shot of bourbon, this like double shot glass of 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 whiskey or bourbon, and what I think, believe it's bourbon. And they'd watch him and he kind of has this like almost orgasmic look on his face. Like, and most people watching would be like, oh yeah, it's his first drink. And cause I think right before he takes the drink, he's like, here's to five miserable months on the wagon. Um, and all the irreparable, da- all the irrepar- irreparable damage it caused me. And then he throws the shot back and he's like, uh, like his eyes are like rolling glazed over and kind of rolling in the back of his head. And he's like, like, it's like the greatest drink he's ever had because he's been five months sober. In my opinion, that's not what happens. It's when he drinks the bourbon that like that is his that is the rest of his moral soul and conscience being given over to the hotel. So, you know what I think? I think that the transaction happens a lot more viscerally, and I think it happens right before that. When? OK, I'm interested to hear that. Where? When do you think? At least I think it gets, for lack of a better word, jump started when he gets shocked by the house. What do you mean shocked by that? Wait, what what scene? There's a there's a scene where like he's like a something happens with like the power outage and then he just gets like zapped. I don't recall the scene. Wait, when when is this happening? Hold on, I'm trying to I'll try to bring it up. But yeah, there's like a scene. He uh, they're trying to like get like the lights back on or something, and then he just gets he gets zapped and it's like he has a direct connection to the house. To the house or the is this in the book or the film? I don't remember. No, it's in the film. Are you sure? Maybe, maybe I dreamt it. I think you might have dreamt this. I, I wrote it in my notes though. <laughs> Did you wake up and dream this? <laughs> no, could could have been. All right. Um, while I uh, skim through for uh, while I skim through for this, um. Bear with me for a moment. I did want to uh, kind of go through some of my chronological notes that I had. 
like from start to finish, just some uh, nice uh, things that I noticed. Uh, so from the start, like I was saying, it looks uh, kind of like bright um, and whatnot in the hotel. And it's almost like the, the hotel is lit up by the guests. Okay. Um, and then as they all leave, it just gets a little more dark and gloomy. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the lighting thing. Well, like right. he uses all this light, this light trickery. Like, by the way, this is like one of the most well lit um, horror films ever, because most horror films try to like hide the monsters or the ghosts or the ghouls or the goblins in the darkness and the shadows. And like every scene in this film is perfectly well lit. Like until even even at the end, like when they're in the maze, like you totally could have shot that. He takes a second right before he's like going to go chase Danny with the axe to go into the maze. He even takes a moment right before he steps outside to like reach across the door frame to like turn the maze lights on. So when he's out there, he can find him. So like mm-hmm. every scene is so well lit and also really well colored. Right. There's all these like crazy stark color contrasts throughout the film all over the place. Yeah, it's the uh, it's it's called the Shining for a reason, but yeah, it's at um, true, right? What is it at around the um? It's like when he's sleeping. Uh, at the, I'm at like forty, like fifty, around fifty uh, minutes in, he's okay. sleeping. Uh, what's her name goes to like flip a switch or something. What's he? That's how he passes out. Yeah, it's like danger high voltage. Oh, she's well, she's the one doing it, though. Not him. Yeah, so, yeah, but he's, like, doing something. Like, he's clearly, like, he's... Well, he's sleeping. He's sleeping at the desk. When she's, like, fucking around in the boiler room, and yeah. she's, like, she's, like and doing then, checks on all the, right. on all the so, panels and everything on the yeah, circuit boards. She, she turns the danger high voltage on and kicks everything into high gear, and that's when he screams and, like, has... Oh, like, I see. So you're correlating with her with her messing with the electric the electric system when she's out she's out on the circuit boards like i think she's just doing like a basic audit like because that's part of her duties of the just like resetting it and making sure everything's good yeah so you're saying that when she hits the certain switch all of a sudden he starts screaming i never really correlated it yeah she could be right oh snap and then he's passed out like so i think it's like he had like a direct connection to the house and it just like zapped him it was like boom but the thing is he has that dream and he's like, I had a horrible dream. Like, you know, he's and like, I killed awful. you all. All right. Yeah. I'm... He was disgusted by it. He truly mm-hmm. was like as big of an asshole as he was the whole movie. He is like, that's something horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Something I couldn't like abide by. And then you slowly see him like until he gets to the point where I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to chop you up into pieces. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> that's another moment of the film that like, it always like, it doesn't take me out of the film, but I always do chuckle at it when she's just like, she's like, that is impossible. She says like, and she's like, that is impossible. And then he's just like, that is, he like mocks her like a child. Yeah. I just laugh every time he does. He mocks her like that. And like, there's moments in that film I don't know if I've seen the film too many times at this point or or that it's just been like memed, but like, I don't know. I guess it's one of the few horror movies that like kind of loses its, its horrifying aspects. And I, cause I'm so much more fascinated with the film than I am. Like uh, I was just telling my wife that I'm, I'm like, as we're watching it, I'm, I'm so less scared of this than I'm just interested. I'm just more fascinated by like what Kubrick's doing the, mm-hmm. the you know the very symmetrical camera shots the the color schemes the 
the theories, like the disorientation of like, I know that he like, um, he would reorient like furniture and, and carpet and carpets and rugs so that they would look different in between shots of the same scene. So that like to give like a very disorienting look, I know that like he would obviously place, um, he would place like, like I know some of like the food was turned out. So you'd see the native American face on one of like the canisters and all that. Um, all that stuff is, and it's really, it's really hard to do a podcast about this film because there actually has been just so much research on it that like, I, I, I was, I feel like I there's was, a lot of regurgitation that we're probably going to undergo on this, in this was, pod, but yeah, I was thinking about, um, even like, so during like the interview, like, so it's like very like Americanized where it's like the, uh, the lands. The, so the hotel, uh, is like remade as a luxury thing, but it's like built on the burial ground, but there's like the Americanized themes, like the uh, the owner of it's ex-military. He has a mug that's like an artillery shell. Um, he likes it's very like apparent that he like has served to some degree, and he's like, I'm a little shaken by what happened because you got to think too. What happened was he walked into that hotel, saw those two dead girls, the the dead mom, and then he blew his brain. He's like, oh, this is a rough scene. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah. I mean? Well, like that. I mean, that's that's the well. That guy, like that guy, like clearly represents America, right? And then, right. like the dead Americans represent like collateral damage of like Native American genocide. And um, well, oh, I, yes. I, I want to talk about the pacing. Can we talk about the pacing? I just want to shift really quickly to the pacing because I, I I don't want to forget this point while it's still in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. So there's two things that I noticed that Kubrick does with the film. Number one, do you ever notice that every scene? Everyone is moving very, everyone's moving at like half speed, like in every scene, it, like even like the scene where like, um, where like the all, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy scene. And like mm-hmm. when Wendy's like backing up, swinging the bat, which by the way, was like, um, again, I guess it was like a, at the time a, a Guinness book of world records where the, they shot that scene. Kubrick made them shoot that scene, that really long, horrifying scene, 127 times, apparently, which was a world record at the time for a lot of times a single scene was shot. And I just got to say, like, this movie, its pacing is kind of it's it's not its curse. It's like the opposite of its curse. It's like the, the pacing of the film and not just the pacing of the film, but the like the plot moves the way it needs to move. But like each scene is so slow and deliberate and every movement from the actors is like even Danny when he's like when he's walking up to write red rum on the door is just like he's just his physical body is moving so slow. So here here's the thing. It's all like it's almost right there with the pacing. It's like the movie doesn't want you to run away from the problems. Like you're yeah, slowly like, like in front of it and like it's creeping and like getting closer. But like the fastest scenes that like you see is like when they are uh, when Danny's being playfully chased by his mom. Yeah, like or when he's on the bike, I guess, like which is like the, oh, we should talk about the steady cam a little bit and like the introduction of the steady cam that they had been used in like three or four films before this. But it was like it's like one of it's cinematic history and it, the way it's shaped the steady cam being a like kind of like a utility tool to mount the camera so that it wouldn't shake and move is like almost like a, a way to keep the camera still, but also move at a fast pace at a lower, at different, lower and different angles. Uh, just like this very important piece of like film um, equipment that could make, that made a lot of 
I mean, it became a part of the movie story. It still is to this day. It's a very important piece of equipment, and it was most famously used following tracking Danny um, on his tricycle, like coasting through the hotel. But the pacing of the film, you know, speaking back to that, is like honestly the fastest motion in the film is is when he's trying to shock you at the end, and like you hear like. Um, He'll like really fast zoom in on a, on a scene on like a, a scene of violence like like I believe he does that when um, when Dick Halloran Scatman Crothers um, uh-huh. is like laying there dead from Jack th- swinging the axe at him. Um, they like and Wendy discovers him when every time Wendy discovers something the the camera yeah, stops. It's like, yeah, and then it's that's that crazy like native chanting and like like there's like blocks, there's like instrumental blocks. I'm not gonna it's, lie, that's like what you're saying. Like some of the things is just like too funny. Like when she roll or like it's like he can't even take it serious. When she looks over, it's just a dude and like the like the dog. Yeah, there's like a fu- there's like a furry Wait. situation going on. What was it called? I'd a- be like like I would. <laughs> It's like a dude in a bear costume blowing a guy. Right. I'm like, trying to. I'm wrong? trying to like. If all right, I'm Wendy in that situation. I'm terrified. I'm running, and I'm like, "What the heck's going on? Oh my god, dead bodies!" I look over. Wait, what the fuck? It's like, more confusion than it's fun. Did you also notice? I noticed this time that I watched it that like that dude has a that dude in his co- bear costume has like his ass flap down, so his ass is out. Oh, I believe it. It's very Imagine strange. Being- Imagine being typecast for that. I'd be like, yeah, I'll be in your movie, Stanley Kubrick. I'd be like, yo, I read the thing. Never mind. Bro. He I'm just showed up. Him. He was just like, I brought my bear, my bear costume. Ass flaps are missing. I'm ready to go. Set the cameras up. Yeah, I remember no, seeing that when I was younger, and like that, that scene actually scared the shit out of me because of how fucking bizarre it was. Like, it was so bizarre that whenever that scene would come up, I'd be like, dude, I can't. Even, I don't even know what to think. <laughs> what are they doing? I just, I couldn't under, I couldn't understand. It was so, it was so strange. Like things like that always used to scare me a little bit more because they were. You knew something was up. Yeah, because like the very next scene, something was up. I told, I told Ashley this tonight when we were watching. The, I actually think one of the best shots in the film is when he turns that entire dining room that she's in like she just like turns away and then looks back and then the entire dining room turns into like a ghost like a true haunted house mm-hmm. like there's just skeletons everywhere and cobwebs and ancient and it, looks, it looks like an abandoned dining hall like in the lighting the way he's got it, it looks like it's moonlit all of a sudden mm-hmm. out of nowhere and it's it's and she looks like a ghost because that's just like i i don't mean to be insulting to shelly duvall and we'll, we'll talk about shelly duvall in a much more respectable manner um when we get to the Kubrick stuff, but like, like she's very ghostly. She has like very ghostly features. She has like very, like she has like very like thin and long cheeks and like a long face, just like a ghost. And like that scene is like fucking stunning. Like that one little 10 second shot of like, boom, she cuts back. Boom. She's in a dining hall. It actually reminds me of the dining hall from uh, the first resident evil game. I don't know if you ever played that one. Um, there's like a, there's actually a passageway in the mansion that looks exactly like that room. And it's like, holy shit, like probably influenced by this film. Probably. But it's just a stunning shot. And like, he does a lot of that stuff. And you ever notice that he also like throughout the film, he does this thing where like, he does a lot of like start, he'll start way out with the camera and then slowly pan and zoom in to whatever the, the centerpiece of the shot is, whether it's Jack or Danny or, uh, whatever it is that he's, he'll start yeah, like way, way uh, out and then start slowly zooming in or, or he'll do the opposite. The, the inverse of that, where he'll start really, really close shot and then slowly drag the camera back 
and it's just like everything is doing that. He's like the master of like this slow zoom in or out of a scene that is just so stark and it just grabs you. It forces you to pay attention because like the camera's moving and revealing shit. Right. Right. Like, like it's either so far out that it's too out of focus and you want to see what he's going to zoom in on. Or it's the opposite where he's so zoomed in that like, as he's backing away from what he's zoomed in on, it's going to like the Dick Halloran shit when he's laying in his bed and there's just like, it's on his eyes and then he slowly backs away and there's a naked lady and the painting above him. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just every time he's zooming, it's the zoom reveals a bunch of shit that's not in the shot. Right. So like, like it kind of he's fu- uh, he's uh, he's zooming into the uh, the maze when he's looking at the uh, the overview of it. Bro, I still don't know how the fuck he made that shot. I have no idea how he did that because it's not really the maze. It's the act right. like he's 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 zooming in on the actual uh, model, right? The maze model. But you actually see Jack and when uh, uh, I'm sorry, Danny and Wendy, like roaming in the centerpiece, which is must be the real things. I, I, I that is the most mesmerizing thing I've ever seen. That like overshot of the labyrinth, uh, and I, I think it's it's brilliant, and it looks it's so fucking artistic just on its own. But like the fact that like I just cannot figure out exactly how he made the model integrate with like reality, the actual maze. I, it's just mm-hmm. baffling. Just baffling, and this is what makes Kubrick so fun to talk about because he just he does a lot of shit like this. So it's just very like mesmerizing and um, pretty unbelievable. I guess um, um, I just want to hit a couple of like interesting points of trivia. Like his, Kubrick's influences, obviously, he was influenced by uh, Eraserhead um, by D- David Lynch in terms of like tone, which I, I actually totally get. I've seen Eraserhead once um not i'm not a huge fan of it but it is kind of sh- it's it's very shocking and very like ominous and sl- uh, very slow and like the same the same kind of sense of like it kind of evokes dread right is that the word is it the right word is it you do you have a better word to describe like what emotions this movie is like kind of grasping at um i get no yeah there's a sense of uh impeding doom for danny yeah, for sure. Especially, you know, the way it culminates at the end, them chasing him through the maze. Um, uh, let, well, let's talk performances. Let's talk a little bit about the acting. Like, um, So, like, does Nicholson... I mean, <laughs> I'd be amazed if you thought that his performance was weak or you thought there were flaws in it. I mean, what do you think? I want to hear what you have to say about Nicholson. And um, if you think what I think and that it's an unbelievable performance in genuinely brilliant um he did know. uh he did really good because i hated him yeah oh right yeah like which is what he's going for um right yeah but he doesn't he does a lot of weird things and jesus does he look fucking evil how does he, he do does. that like you're talking about a guy who was probably one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time and he was like obviously very like he's a handsome fucking guy in the 70s like when he was in chinatown and fucking um you know five easy pieces and Easy Rider, when he's in all these like counterculture films from the you know 10 years prior, like he, this dude's like a he's a stud man. Um, he, but this is just not that this guy looks genuinely disturbed in like yeah, a way that I've, I don't know that I've ever seen an actor look as disturbed as he looks in this film, or I've never seen a movie star of his stature look this like truly evil. Like between like obviously you've got the Kubrick stare, um, which is when when he's wearing like the green turtleneck, 
Mm-hmm. Like Kubrick does this in all of his films, or almost all of them, where like the camera slowly zooms in on a on one of his characters staring dead eyed into the camera, um, which is very like you know important aspect or attribute of like Kubrick filmmaking. Um, I got a question for you though. I was asking Ashley this; she didn't she didn't agree with me this on on this one. So I'm I'm curious what you think. I don't know why, but as I was watching Nicholson perform. Did you get DiCaprio vibes from a young Jack Nicholson? Is that is that just me or do they? It really, really, it must be because Ashley disagreed. I I think they look alike. Yeah, I mean, I get a little bit. They've got like mannerisms that remind me of one another. Um, Maybe it's from seeing them in The Departed. I don't know. I'm I'm willing to be. I'm willing to be. Um, if I'm wrong, I'm open to it. But I I don't know. That's just the vibe I get. Um. Um, one thing I wanted to, uh, take us, take us places. Yeah. So I just wanted to, uh, circle back real quick to, uh, some of the stuff that happened in the, uh, in the beginning. Um, I think, uh, at least uh, in my head canon, I think the girls might've had the shine. Ooh, that's a theory. Okay. Well, I I want to, I want to, can I drop a little bit of like, um, uh, this is actually a flaw with the film in my opinion. The girls are always referred to as the twins, mm-hmm. not twins. They're revealed in the beginning of the film with a conversation with the uh, the hotel manager that they were eight and ten years old, oh. so not twins. But I actually think that's a bit of a flaw in the writing because he definitely presents them as twins, and they definitely they, the two actresses are very clearly twins. I mean, they're dressed right. exactly alike, um, which means that Kubrick interprets them as twins, but they also are very clearly identical twins. Um, but, uh, not according to the, uh, script. Yeah. I think they had a bit Small of a shine. Interesting. Um, what makes you think that? Uh, ju- I think, uh, it, it might just be like their imprint. Like, you know, cause they said like, Oh, like some places will have like the imprint and it's just that, but they seemed like, uh, like ambulatory. Like they're, they're like, yo, Danny, like come join us. Like, we'll just hang out here all the time. We'll be chill. Like he, yeah, they it. had a big interest in Danny for, if they were right. interested in shining with someone, he was the guy that they were going for. They wanted to go talk to Danny. And also right. how would Danny, well, if they were just ghosts, I think they would have been seen by any, but one of the other characters, but they weren't, they were only seen by Danny. Right. So I mean, I, I bet uh, I bet his mom would have seen him towards the end. But, um, oh, yeah, uh, right before uh, Jack goes to sleep uh, or gets shocked or whatever, um, it's like where you really see that he's just a jerk. And I kind of it's like my it's kind of like my favorite scene in hindsight. Um, where he tells her to get the fuck out. Yeah, he's like, get out when you see me in here typing or not typing. I'm working. Whatever the so, fuck you see me in here doing? Yeah, he's he's blaming her for his uh his other problems, like another good movie, um. But the other movie nails it home like a lot more. So like the sole point of it, it's like a Banshees of Insurance. Ah, yes, he's that's like, a you, great a great shout, man. Yeah. yeah, he's like you are ruining this for me by asking me. How my day's going by being a nice person. You are fucking this up. I'm never going to be a good writer because of all this shit you're doing. And it's like, they're just like, what do you mean? I'm just like, you want to hang out or not? It's pure. It's well, and a psychological, to use a psychological term, it's pure projection. It's mm-hmm. all it is. It's just a projection of like his insecurities. But like for me, it, with the Jack character, it's almost more that he's just, um, 
I don't know. Actually, it might just be that because at that point, I don't know. He hasn't sold his soul, according to my theory. Um, he hasn't been shocked yet, right? By the according still, to your theory, so, so he might just be a dick. You might be right. He might just be but, purely a dick and in, in his bones. But here's why it's kind of my favorite, uh, my favorite scene in hindsight because I think while he is, um, like he hasn't been shocked. He's not fully going through like the whole stuff or hasn't had the dream yet. Um, I think he still is just going through that writer's block and that malaise. Um, if you ask me, like I had dollars to donuts that note he ripped up was just this it was all work and no play makes yeah, i thought the same thing yeah, oh my god i'm so glad you said he it screamed at her he, he said get the fuck out of here yeah he ripped because he, he ripped it up so up. fast as soon as yeah. he did not want her to see it he he's did like, not now, want her to see it he's like now look at what you did look at what you've done you made me have to throw this away dicking around <laughs> yeah you see me fucking <laughs> Like a fucking I mean, actual. That asshole. is a hilarious way because I actually get. I came to like a similar conclusion. It was like this dude's been literally fucking procrastinating. Like this is the right. worst case of procrastination <laughs> of all time. He's like, this is your fault. <laughs> God damn, you're coming here distracting me, offering me a fucking sandwich. You ruined it. What do you mean you're offering me unconditional love? Well, Ashley, Ashley made a point that she was just like, uh, she she asked a great question. She was like, why is she, why is she talking to him like that? That's like not good acting. And I was just like, oh no, you don't understand. It's great acting. Like, okay, let's talk the Shelly Duvall thing. This is a good segue into the Shelly Duvall thing. Shelly Duvall is, I came to the conclusion on my last viewing of this film. Shelly Duvall is phenomenal in this film as an actress. And I don't care what any, that's my opinion. I will. I've seen this movie enough. I can't be swayed away from it. I think she's nailing it, but it's just unique. It's 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 a very strange performance, but I it think works. She's, I think she's a very very good mother at heart. She has the best intentions all the time. Yeah, exactly. And 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 Ashley was asking me. She was like, "Why is she talking to him that way?" Because she's just like, "Hey, hun. Well, okay. Well, uh, once you're done, I can come down and bring you a couple of sandwiches." And she's like, very smiley and very agreeable and like very submissive. And like, I know Kubrick had like this is the other problem is like, or not Kubrick, but Stephen King had a problem with. Um, I guess in the book, I don't really recall this being the truth, but like, I'll take his word for it. It's been a long time since I read it, but according to him, the the Wendy character is like much stronger, not like just this like sloppy mess. Like according to him, he didn't like that. Wendy was just like a useless over. Yeah. It was useless. And basically just like blubbering around, like screaming and crying, like, like an average horror film. Well, so here's the thing. That's bullshit. She's strong, man. She's a strong character. I think, I think uh, me too, because here's the thing. Like when push comes to shove, it's just her and her son there. If she was worried about, her husband like doing something to them they are they are hours away from help from anyone what are you gonna do distressed listen yes she's distressed but at the end of the day she embarrassed that fool bro she embarrassed him think about this he was getting he was getting fucking ragged on by grady at the end he was like well if you can't because remember grady is in like the food pantry talking to him from the other side Mm -hmm. of the door being like if you can't handle this maybe we should like me like are you going to take care of this and and he's just basically ragging on jack torrance being like you're not taking care of this business like you're maybe she's stronger than we than we actually than we thought and he's like don't worry i'll take care of it and he doesn't she gets the better of him and wins she gets in the snowcat fires that thing up and he freezes to death and she wins like Mm -hmm. this 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 interpretation from stephen king and i know that it's hard to argue with the guy who wrote the novel but like 
the interpretation that Wendy is a weak character in the film, I think is bullshit. It's only embodied. Like if you're watching on a surface level and you're just like, Oh yeah, she's crying a lot and like, kind of like exasperated and, and very like, you know, distraught, which like, okay, it's okay for the woman to be distraught. But by the way, she, she whacks him in the head with the baseball bat, knocks him unconscious, then drags his lifeless 200 pound body. Into she, a yeah. I think, pantry. I think Wendy's like one of the first people in like a, not one of the first people, but like one of the few times in a horror film where you're like, yes, why not that? Just yeah. That was a great like idea. That. Yeah. You're like, well, just hang on. No, no, no. I disagree. I, I, I brought this up to, to Ashley when I was watching it. Just, this is past time. You mm. just kill him. No, don't just kill him. Why would you lock him in the food pantry, bro? You're not gonna live. You can't live without the food. You need the if food. You, can, you know how long it takes for you to die from starvation. It doesn't matter. They could have been. They could have been snowed in that place for months. But well, either way, saying, either dude. way, either way, there's any other room. You could drag him into any other no, room. Because here's the him. thing. I'm I'm wagering that they, they die from hypothermia. Before I die from starvation. Why would they die from hypothermia? They have a the guy in have... the freezer. Oh no, he's not in the freezer. He's in a dry food pantry. There's no. It's not cold. Yeah, it's cold. No, it's not. It's not cold. That's not the freezer. That was. I'm telling you. If you look at when oh, he gets yeah. up. Oh yeah. No, you're because there's, there's nothing but dry canned foods all around him. It's just a dry yeah, food no, pantry. You're, yeah, you're you're right. And that's where all the food is. And like, why would you lock the maniac murderer? in the food pantry, like now you're fucked because you can't get any food that you could drag him into any yeah, room. You could, and- call, you could call someone though, as he's locked in there. Oh, but that's the thing too. Um, you said something earlier about the pacing. I love how in the beginning they're like, this is going to be a horror movie. They are isolated and they're like, food's not going to be an issue. They're like, it's not a, one of those things. One oh man, bro. There is like, nothing straight up. There is nothing like listening to Scatman Crothers just rip off that entire list of food. When he's like, ta- when he's talking to Dan, you like ice cream, Doc? Like when right. he's just going off, he's just like, "Hey, yo, like how'd you, how'd you fucking do that with your brain?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Because yeah, because that's the initial like because yeah, he, he, he tells you immediately. He says, "We got canned fruits and vegetables, canned fish and meats, hot and cold syrups, post toasties, cornflakes, sugar puffs, rice krispies, oatmeal, and cream of wheat." Like he's got, I mean, he's just ripping them off. He, he, he got he everything. Off, he names off all the meats, and I'm so glad because I would have forgot about it. Um, the last he goes, we got it, and we got about a couple legs of lamb. He goes, "You like a lamb, Doc?" And um, he goes, "No, of course, Danny doesn't like a lamb because he's a good person. It's the the lamb of God. He doesn't. Ooh. He won't eat the innocent. You know ah, what I mean? That's he, won't, he he won't partake in the lamb." That's the good because catch. I is. never caught that. Yeah, I never yeah, caught that. Yeah, because he is a lamb. Well, I always say I I laughed earlier when he was talking uh, when he's he's ripping him off and he basically tells he basically tells Wendy like you got to make sure you're shitting you're shitting right because <laughs> he's like he's like a dozen jugs of black molasses we got sixty boxes of dried milk 30, 30 12 pound bags of sugar now we got dried peaches dried apricots dried raisins and dried prunes you know Mrs Torrance you got to keep regular if you want to be happy <laughs> I'm like oh shit he just literally told this woman you are not going to be happy in this hotel unless you're shitting right and then he hits our hits her with all the fucking he said said all the good food then he said here's the drano here's the drano (laughs) he said you load up a half a rack of ribs a night she's fucking colon cleanse that shit we got everything you need yeah it's fantastic what do you think about scatman crothers you think like how's his acting in this 
I I really liked it. Um, I liked it because um, I you know what I really I think it was important at the time too with like uh like racial dynamics where they're like all right the evil person is like definitely like the white guy and like there's a black person who is like totally can totally continue the trope though of like he's the first person to go he's, and also only the, and the only and, and also he continued the trope of magic black man yeah the a mystical bit. old the, the mystical old wise right. black man yeah. Yeah, a little bit. He's like uh, one of the first people is probably not even the truth. Like but yeah, I was gonna say maybe he is actually not continuing. He might have actually originated it, but um, one of them. Which know, is which is another thing because like I, I know there's a lot of that. Like you, you could go down that road, but you wonder like maybe this movie's just like if if this was one of the first, maybe the sometimes it's like you can attribute influence to just being like I, I just I, like filmmakers were just trying to make films that were as good as like great films and they took hey, I, some of these I attributes and, having a not like you know having a, a african-american character being like one of the best characters like in the film like he's yeah like, I actually think it's kind of progressive of yeah technically like a beacon of light well it's like uh, horror has always done a great job of this we talked about this a little bit in the horror podcast we did last well, week. well it's always because it, there's always bigger monsters it's like yo we gotta i don't care that you're a little bit darker than me or like you like like different stuff but like, no like gotta, well, no i'm killed. talking about i'm talking about how like george a romero in with night of the living dead kind of acted oh yeah like, the, the, yeah Dwayne, the black guy survives um, well he doesn't survive he's killed in the end but the I last just, person he's the he's the last person but he's also the first person he was the first uh he was like that film started off he was the first lead in horror and one of the first horror films ever made he's he's the first um he's the first lead actor african-american actor in an american film um uh, there might be some wiggle room on that dwayne jones um Hold on, let me, let, maybe I can find it really quickly. I, I'm okay. His role in the 1968 film *Night of the Living Dead* marked the first time an African American actor was cast as the star and hero of a horror film, and one of the first times in American cinema where an important role was given to a black actor when the script did not explicitly call for one. So this was a conscious choice by by George A. Romero, um, and like so that's kind of where I think that kind of thing started and that's why horror is kind of cool like horror's got a got a place for this and I know people will always kind of sh- shit on horror because they're like oh well oh the black guy always dies first or the black black characters uh don't tend to survive in horror films shit, it's like, at least they got to look at a fucking Tim Burton film damn there yeah exactly you watch Tim Burton there's no black people in anything right. whereas like at least like you watch scream the scream series there's a lot of black people in like in not the first one but the second one's like there's a bunch of, of black characters in those horror movies. And I, I would tend to say that the whole, the thing about it is like, how much is it intentional? Like, you know, uh, so, some of it's a little bit of Hollywood, like typecasting and shit like that. Some, and some of that being entrenched in a little bit of racism. You know what I think the main thing is though, is uh, horror is universal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, that's why get out was such an important film for this, uh, for this genre, because it was just like, it like did everything it did all it like kind of like shook up everything it like it like took the snow globe and like shook it up really 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 hard and was like oh shit like i'm not only going to make a film that centers around a black central character but i'm also going to like include all the socio-cultural stuff that's like influences black fear in america um which is why get outs is like such a brilliant film but well anyway well let's circle back to the shining before we get too far into the weeds on that kind of stuff um 
I guess where where we left off, I and mean, we were talking about Scatman. Um, I he's not a good actor. Um, I guess he would. I guess he was like I, I, he does great in this film. I should I should say that up front. Like I actually think he was very 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 good in the film. He's like you fucking like don't you you kind of want to hang with the guy. He seems he seems like a good hang. He's he's like you know he's very like uh, personable. He's super smiley, super nice. I think great I think to he Danny. Does a really, I think he does a really good job at the beginning. Is like a because like Danny's a very like closed off person, and like you still kind of like you almost feel that too. You're like, why is this guy so nice? Like, what's he on about? Like, is he really like a good person? You almost don't even trust him. Like up until a little bit, starts, right. up until he starts explaining his story about the shining. You're like, okay, like you know this this all makes sense. I love that little interaction where they have like that little personal conversation with one another. Uh, he's while... fucking great with kids, dude. He's so nice. Yeah, he's so nice to him, and he like really like he immediately becomes a hero of the film. And then of course, like I, I, it truly is one of the most shocking. It's not shocking anymore because you kind of see it coming, obviously now. But when when Jack appears at the end of the film and just whips that axe at him, um, and lights him up and basically kills him instantly with an axe to the chest. I mean, yeah, imagine that too. You that get, fucking like, killed. That was shocking the first time I saw that. I didn't because like, first of all, Jack just screams. It does that same thing where it zooms in really fast and then like makes that crazy ass score noise where it's like it's like banging ring. percussive stuff and like ring. Yeah, like and you hear Jack just grunt really loud when he swings the axe. Yeah, and then like you don't even you moment. don't even see it hit him. You just like hear a thud, and then it's just like buried like in his room. No, you see it. It zooms in on him. It, 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 you know why you think that? It, this is why Kubrick's a genius. You think that because he changes the shot, so it's from his back. Like the shot is aimed at his back, mm-hmm. right? It's aimed at Scatman Crothers' back, at Dick Hallard's back. Jack appears, grunts, swings the axe, hits him with the axe, and when he hits him with the axe, um, like he does this amazing thing where the there's like a really fast cut and then it's it goes to a camera facing dick halloran and it's you watch buried. the axe go in to his chest yeah, like it almost like kind of resets the scene a little bit where he swings the axe like it's about at the half swing and then you watch the axe actually do go into his chest and then the blood and he's clearly dead and uh jack's like grunting while he's doing it and it's it's just it's, it's extremely gruesome and shocking to it and like a good jump square maybe one of the first jump scares um like, like you know, in a truer sense i know there had been jump scares but like i mean that's a really good jump scare where like you it kind of leaves you you kind of sense it you kind of sense it but maybe not but maybe not and the first time you see it it really gets you Right, like you're you're not ready for like you're like how violent is he gonna get? And then he just drops this dude like underneath the, his right. left breast. Yeah. All right. Um, and like Carol, that's the thing. Like you don't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Really, I was just gonna say you don't. When you think about getting killed with an axe, like oh, like don't hit me in the face or don't cut off my head. Like just getting hit in the just body, just wow. Oh. Yeah, and then like well, like when he's breaking down the door, and we'll talk. Like we, let's talk about that for just a second. Um, like when he's breaking down the door to get into the bathroom with with uh, with uh, Wendy. Like, oh my god! Like, I'm just so fascinated with what Kubrick decides to do because people have tried it, and and they they definitely have tried it. I mean, in some ways, but nobody's ever done it as effectively. Where like that fucking camera feels like it's attached to the axe. You know how he's swinging the axe, and the camera is swinging with his swing. Like, like watch that scene again the next time you watch it, and like every time he's like he's like he's like 
haunching back with the axe. And then as soon as he swings it towards the door, this camera swings at the same pace as the axe, like perfectly synchronized. And like, it's really shocking to see that because I don't know that I've ever seen another film do that. There's a lot of that in this film. There's so much unique film, like cinematography and like direction by Kubrick. Where like, when's the last time you've seen somebody fucking swing a camera with a guy trying to chop a door down? In that in that manner, in that like really fast, snappy, like the, the axe swings at the door, bang, and the camera follows it all the way. Yeah, to the- you are right too. It's like the camera goes and it's like stops at the door, like, boom. and then it cuts like, back like, when he throws it again. He throws him like get it, like the it's like the camera is like the momentum of like this. You're way. feeling it, yeah. You're yeah. feeling the scene, and then like obviously you get the iconic, and we'll we'll mention it because it's got to be mentioned in a podcast about The Shining. Dude sticks his face in the door and hits you with the fucking iconic line of all iconic lines. Maybe the most quotable line in the history of cinema, at least in the top like 50 lines in the history of, of movies. He hits you with a motherfucking here's Johnny, which like, <laughs> you know, what's really funny about that is uh, not to throw my wife under the bus on this podcast, but like she totally was just like. Uh, she was like, what does he mean when he says that? And I was just like, oh, this is this is perfect. Like, you know, uh, her, we're all you, me and my wife. We're from a different generation. But like, I do understand the reference. And like um, most I wonder how many millennials don't get this reference anymore. But like, that's that's the Johnny Carson. Like when Johnny Carson would come out on on stage, like the band would introduce him. And here's Johnny. And in 1980, that was obviously very relevant and everybody got it. But like I was I was at a crossroads where I was like, oh, shit, man, I wonder how many people will get will think that that line is originated from The Shining instead of where it actually came from, which was the Johnny Carson show. But obviously one of the most iconic moments in the history of cinema. Do you think think Shelley could have got out that window? Yeah, I kind of felt that way. I was like, I would have broke that window. It did. She wasn't opening it all the way. Like you well, can see that there's she more tries room. To, she tries to slam it up at one point, and it, like it doesn't work. But I would have just broke the window out. I would have broke. I would have pushed it out. Yeah, and just got got out because the the snowcat's already out there. Oh no, no, the snowcat arrives while they're in there, which I always thought was a. Little, I also thought that was a little weird that like as soon as the snowcat arrives, he just abandons the. Uh, he's just like, so, I guess I'm. I guess I'm done trying to kill my wife for a moment. Pause this, she, uh, Wendy. Could you just remain here in this? disheveled bathroom while I go murder a a black savior here who has come to save your life. So this whole uh, I think you uh, I think I lost you Errol. Are you muted? Okay this is a perfect time I've lost Errol's uh, audio so we're going to take a short break. This is a perfect opportunity. Um, Errol's mic might have died so let's just take we're going to take a short break um, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the conclusion of The Shining. Thanks so thanks so much f- for uh, hanging in there for this episode. We're going to keep rolling with it. Um, if you hang tight, we'll be right back in just a few minutes, and uh, we'll see you then. All 
right, welcome back, folks. That was a short break. We were kind of due for one anyway. We had a couple of little technical difficulties on our old side that we uh, were all cleaned up on. Um, picking back up where we left off, we were talking about, we're, you know, we're kind of at the conclusion of the film. We talked a lot about, we haven't really talked so much about the plot in chronological order, but we've really hit a lot of the big notes in relation to the production and the direction and the camera angles and the shots and the music and the coloring and all that stuff. Um, where we were talking about Errol, you were just mentioning, um, I was asking you if you thought that, uh, Wendy could have fit through the window. So, so Jack kind of chopping down the door, she scoots Danny out the window and he kind of goes sliding down the, the snowbank. And I was saying that like the way that I was looking at Wendy in the window frame where she's kind of like half out of the window already, I honestly feel like she could have squeezed out. <laughs> I think she so, could have got out. I think so too. She actually, um, she does make an earnest attempt to slam up the window, and it does seem like it's stuck. But I would yeah, just maybe ice. It. I would have just broke it. I would have pushed it forward. I would have been out that bitch. Granted, right, he could have came out too, but like have fun coming out with the axe, slide it down here. Yeah, and chuck it over the oh maze. My God. What about that acting too? I was gonna say um, the acting when Jack. Um, so like he's kind of wait. He's like coming to in the food pantry, and he kind of gets up, right. He's like starting to get up and then his ankles like broken or sprained or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, as soon as he steps on it, he's like, Ooh, ah, ah. And then he like starts hobbling on it. I was like, mm-hmm. bro, I'm not convinced that that dude actually might've hurt his ankle. Like that was that good of acting. That was so convincing. Like, like it's as soon as he puts pressure on it, it's like, that was, I guess maybe that's kind of almost easier to act. Uh, I don't know. You're a somewhat uh, experienced actor. Like, is it easier to like embody or like to em- envision yourself injured or to like manifest an injury if like you pretend that one of your body parts is like is like injured and then as soon as and I don't know does that make it is it easier to act that than like an emotional expression? I think it's I think it is easier to act than like an like an emotional thing, but also I think it's a lot easier to forget. All right, yeah, but he doesn't because he hobbles like the rest right. of the film. Like he really. And it's a little pronounced. I mean, I well, that's he, a, I was going to say, though, if it's going to be a thing, then it has to be like a thing. You can't like if you're going to ham it the whole time, you have or if you're to ham it up in the beginning. You have to do it the whole time. I really like how uh, we keep talking about the pacing or bringing up the word pacing. Um, but I like how that really does uh, tone down the speed, but build up the suspense. Like yeah. He's not just going to sprint them down and like, you know, just kick Sharon Duval down the stairs and like chuck the axe at her. Yeah, but he, he no, uh, he turns into a classic horror movie monster. He, you want to know what I think? Um, well, all right. So what I was gonna say, like, it's almost like a like a reverse fairy tale where it's like, here's why you don't do what the bad guy does because this can happen. Um, almost to the uh, cliche ness where he's chopping down the door and he's like, uh, "Little pig, little pig, let me in." Oh yeah, um, that's good stuff. That's great. But I, I, what I think the uh, the closest thing that I could equate him to, or uh, the hotel, it would be the uh, the Isle of Crete. He'd okay, be the Minotaur. Could you explain the, what that is? I'm unfamiliar. The, he'd be the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, it's uh, it's Theseus. Uh, so wait, no, I said the island of Crete, but sorry, they they sent people or they sent uh, seven sons seven daughters from crete because they made a, a deal with uh uh minos 
or whatever is. Let me find it. God dang it. Here we are. Um, did you scroll up? Bear with me a moment. Um, no, please go ahead. Dude, you love fucking Greek mythology. And it's, it's, it's you know why? It's because it's everywhere. It's based off of everything. I didn't know. It's entrenched in everything. You're totally right. Greek mythology is just everywhere. And we did this a lot in the Lighthouse episode, but like this belongs in here. And by the way, I will mention the scene in um the scene in the Lighthouse with uh Robert Pattinson like chasing him down or no. Uh no, Willem Dafoe's character uh mm-hmm. chasing him with the hobbling with the axe is like Yeah. He's, he's doing Jack Nicholson. It's this. Yeah. It's this. So totally, totally. Um, no, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, um, talking, uh, you're talking about. Errol's oh yeah, so going to tie King, us in with Theseus here. Yeah, King King Minos of Crete. Uh, he uh, he told uh, the people where Theseus was uh, from, which was I should I wish I was doing better justice to this, but uh, okay. Um, they waged war on the Athenians, and he demanded that uh, at nine-year intervals, seven Athenian boys and seven Athenian girls were to be sent to Crete to de- be devoured by the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull that lived in the labyrinth uh, created by a Daedalus. Uh, on the third occasion, Theseus volunteered to take the mon- or to talk to the monster to stop this horror, and uh, he he took place of one of the youths, and then he went to the island. Um, but pretty much, like at the end, it's if you ask me, it's very much like a the, the a kid in the labyrinth and then the minotaur chasing him to like you know devour him at least for like what he because he said he goes i had a he doesn't say it but uh he goes i had I, he goes i killed you but i didn't just kill you kill you i cut you up into little pieces like he's gonna eat him mm, yeah what other reason would there be to like to just cut like, him up like dismember from them into the pieces yeah Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, like, it's like, uh, and that's what happened to uh, the other little girls as well. Like, it's like every kid who went there was just destined to die by, like, uh, you know, a creature, a minotaur, a half man. Is this half well? Beast. I, so, like, I'm gonna extend this into the theory. There is a theory about the film that the Overlook Hotel, which Overlook is actually really like an ironic name, and it actually kind of plays a little bit into this theory of that it represents because it, like, while it was built on an Indian burial ground, and like, um, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of symbolism as to where you know it was built. It built at elevation. Elevation. Um, it was built in the same region where there was like a supposed native um, uh, pathway to to heaven. That there's a consideration that maybe the Overlook Hotel was built upon the gates of hell. Meaning, oh. meaning the spirits that haunt that the the native. It's not just the Native American spirits. It's true evil. That that like, but here's here's my theory against that is that like I don't know that that's so far. Here's why that doesn't work for me. Jack Torrance never truly, even after he supposedly maybe, if you want to buy into the, my theory that he like sells his soul, he never truly abandons his entire identity. And maybe this is a script problem. It could be a screenplay screenplay problem. But like, there's even when he's like when he's kind of stalking up the 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 steps after um, Wendy when she's like kind of like half swinging the bat at him and he's like mm-hmm. Wendy light of my life like that that scene he never truly abandons who it he doesn't is. it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere 
He well, yeah. I mean, the, well, that that's part of like the the pacing and like the escalation of his madness, right? Well, like, yeah. Like it. I mean, as far as like his character is concerned, it doesn't yes. seem like outside of something that he would do. Well, no, he's but he's just referring to shit that from his like from his previous life with Wendy. Mm-hmm. He's like he's like constantly he he's always been grumpy and a bit of a dick to her, even before they got to the hotel. And then they get to the hotel and it starts getting escalatory, escalatory, escalatory. But he the reason that I don't buy the gates of hell thing is that like, okay, if he if his if he was truly the, just go all the way if you're gonna do that. Because I'm not buying that like if he had been possessed by if he sold his soul and he was now possessed by a true demon of hell, like that he would just be like still negotiating with like the like the trivial bullshit from his like you know domestic life with Wendy, like he was doing in that scene. Like he's just like um uh, do you not understand my responsibilities at this hotel? My employers, like you wouldn't be talking about that shit. That's too grounded for a demon possession moment. Right. Like, I, I just don't buy that. I think that, well, maybe he's still trying to like justify it. Well, I think that, well, yeah, I guess like there's like the idea that like maybe the devil is always the devil is in the details, as they say, as uh, the, the frame goes, which mean meaning that like, the devil's not going to present itself in like a very ominous way. It's in the, it's in the spaces between or whatever. Right. From my perspective, it's more like, I think when he sold his soul, he sold his, his conscience, like his conscience, the, the, the part of, he sold his, he sold his soul of morality, right? Like he's just like, he's abandoned his principles and like, He's slowly and, and it's a process too, because like, he's not, he's not immediately murderous. Right. Like he has to have a few conversations with Delbert Grady before he truly is like committed to murder, to murder his family. Like it doesn't happen like immediately. It's like kind of like this very slow slip into madness. And I, I don't, you tell me, does this play into the, the Greek mythology of, of Theseus? Uh, not really, because there's not necessarily like a hero. I mean, I guess you could kind of. It's just, it's just like all Greek mythology, though. It's like yeah. strewn about. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is about right. And there's some Aphrodite shit in there too, for sure. Um, that I've, I've noticed, but like, for me, it's like Greek mythology. The thing, the thing about Greek mythology is that it's so, it's so brilliant that you can just, you can just see it. It's such a, it's, it's not even the mythology of it. It's the philosophy of it that like can be found in like any one place. Mm-hmm. Um, should one be looking for it? Um, but you know, I like that. I like that, that inclusion. Um, well, okay. Where where do we go from here? Where, where do you want to take this thing? Um, it's right around the end. Jack gets his uh, gets his soul exactly how he likes his uh, bourbon, and that's on ice. Ooh, beauty! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. The bar he goes, I'll sell my soul for a for a uh, for a beer, and then he's like, for "What a do glass you want?" Of beer. He goes. He goes. I got bourbon. How do you want it? He goes. Uh, and he's you know probably like asking him about his soul. And then he's like, I'll have it on ice. And he's like, whatever you say, boss. <laughs> I got you. Just like <laughs> just like less. the inevitability. Great. No, that's great. Um, do you pay any? Um, do you pay any mind to the, um, to the interpretations around? Um, the moon landing stuff like does that does that reach you at all or do you kind of just like bro he wishes he faked the moon landing i mean he he, listen as talented as he is um i don't think the apollo one thing is i think that maybe it was a theory and then he was playing games he was trying you know 
Right, because you know, you know what it would take for um, every. You know what it would. It, well, so one like, it wouldn't make sense to fake the moon landing because we have like proof now, like in the internet and stuff, that like there there's stuff in space. But for them to fake the moon landing back in the day, one, it probably would have cost more money in production and like just to do it, stuff, right? Right, than actually physically going up there. But two, um, there would be proof that it was faked by now. Like someone well, would be like. I was the boom guy for it. God damn, I'm sick of it. <laughs> yeah. Here's my litmus. my litmus test is basically this. Like <clears throat> if if there's a conspiracy that has to involve over a hundred people, I don't buy that it could be it well could that's be actually I forgot what it was called, but yeah, the more people know something, the less of a chance there is that it's a it's secret. hard enough for a conspiracy to stay under wraps when there's like a like a handful of people, let alone what it would take to fake a moon landing, which would be minimum a hundred people bare minimum and that's like that that's just i mean i don't know but yeah no i don't buy any i don't buy into too much of that stuff it's fun i love that crap like that, that it's really cool i love that people do that but once again i don't think that like the internet just didn't do this film justice like i feel like the internet kind of like fucked with this film in a way i don't like where i think it's just been too exposed um by the not that it's not true exposure though because i don't think it's what Kubrick's intentions weren't exposed. The internet and like the internet, the digital age kind of, it kind of implemented its own um, ambiguous uh, agenda for the film. You know what I mean? Like these weird interpretations that are like, like not like, for instance, we'll talk about like, I'm going to read off. I'm going to read this off. Uh, Film critic, John Romney writes that the film has been interpreted in many ways, including addressing the topics of the crisis of masculinity, sexism, corporate America, and racism. It's tempting to read The Shining as an Oedipal struggle, not just between the generations, but between Jack's culture of the written word and Danny's culture of images, Romney writes. Uh, Jack also uses the written word to more uh, to more mundane purpose to sign his, quote, contract with the Overlook. I gave my word which we take to mean gave his soul in the Faustian sense, but maybe he means it more literally by the end. He has renounced language entirely pursuing Danny through the maze with the inarticulate animal roar. What he hasn't entered, um, what he has entered into is a conventional business deal that places commercial obligation over the unspoken contract of compassion and empathy that he seems to have neglected to sign with his family. I actually think that's on the money. I don't really. So see. it really is. There's a there's a lot of stuff that um that's that pretty close, man. Bells. That's so, pretty close. So here's the thing. Like um, there's that What's one. Edible struggle though. Can you can you before? I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. I just want to know what. I need to know what the inter- interpretation of what's the Oedipal struggle. I don't. Um, it, uh, he resents his son. Ah, he resents his so son. It's not, it's not she, purely maternal. It can be paternal yeah, as well. I see. Yeah, okay. yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead with what you were going to say. Sorry. So, uh, gosh darn it. Uh, bear with me for one moment. No, um, that's my that's my fault. I apologize. Yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, God damn it! It's getting late. <laughs> he, he gave his oh. soul. He gave his soul a Faustian sense, but maybe he means it more literally. By the end, he's doing an inarticulate animal roar. Um, oh yeah, so he um, he's grunting, right? Well, <laughs> uh, um. No, he. Uh, I have it in my notes here, actually. Gosh, gosh darn it. Do 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 do. It's here. It's important. No, it's okay. Keep. You're good. You're good. You're good.
dead air. <laughs> no, I'm I know. Okay, it. no, it's um, fine. It's fine. We'll, we can. It's totally fine. Um, no, so uh, he yeah, um, he. Uh, God dang it! What, read the one thing again. Read it from the. Uh, right, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read this one more time. Yeah. So this is a social interpretation. This is an uh, an analysis from film critic Jonathan Romney. Right. Um, it's tempting to read The Shining as an Oedipal struggle, not just between generations, but between Jack's culture of the written word and Danny's culture of images, Romney writes. Jack also uses the written word to more mundane purpose, to sign his quote-unquote contract with the Overlook. I gave my word, which which we take to mean he gave Okay, yeah, no, I got it, I got it. Okay, so okay. He, he, he that guy talks about the stuff too where it's like um, there's a whole like overall like a uh, patriarchal struggle and like a... Uh, like an overt sexism thing kind of going on. Um, I think he hit the nail on the head with that because you'll notice that uh, Jack is, he's formal to uh, all like male figures. Oh yeah. Especially like Delbert Grady spills the drink on him. And if Wendy, like you get a sense that like, he's like perfectly pleasant with him after getting a drink right. spilled it's on. Where, any, like, any guy, like, you know, they all get, yep. And then the women and children, he's like, you little, yeah, you know what I mean? off. But the only, in fairness, the only people he interacts with are his family, is his wife and his son. So, like, you don't really see him interact with other children or other women um, enough to like interpret that. So, I don't, I don't really, I'm not going with that in full, but I do see it there. Yes. And then, um, uh, continue the, uh, continue the one thing. There is a one more. Okay. Thing um, there. he gave his soul in the Faustian sense, but maybe he means in the more literal in. It means it more literally. By the end, he has renounced language entirely, pursuing Danny through the maze with an inarticulate animal roar. What, oh, he has, okay. what he has entered into is a conventional business deal that places commercial obligation over the unspoken contract of compassion and empathy that he seems to have neglected to, to sign with his family. Uh, yeah, no, that's... Um, I think and, that's... Now, you're now that I'm kind of rereading that, he's starting to lose me there towards the end. Like... A commercial obligation. A- I don't know that he's he's not commercially obligated to. So like he's kind of conflicting it with like, well, he's he's more interested in, in like the um the responsibilities bestowed upon him to his his employer and like the accomplishments of like writing over like the compassion and empathy he should have for his family, um, which is supposed to be an unspoken contract of compassion. Um, right. Um, know so you know what he does? He uh, he offers that to the hotel. Um. He, uh, time and time again. Uh, the main time is uh, right when she comes downstairs and she's like, you choked him out again, you bastard. You oh, did son it. Son of a bitch. Right. Um, yeah, you son of a bitch, you did it. And then he's like, what the heck did I do? And then she comes down she's like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. It was a girl in the room. It was a girl in the room. Go and take you care of You lost your fucking mind. That's what he says. Right. That's the yeah, first he, thing he says to her, even well, though so, he's the one losing his mind. Right. So after that, he goes upstairs. He sees a girl. Danny said that a girl in that room choked him out. The girl or his wife we comes didn't even downstairs. mention this scene. This scene is absolutely right. haunting. Right. It's yeah, it's kind of the craziest one. Uh, we're one of them. But uh, yeah, so Dan- Danny's like. A girl in that room choked me out. And then the wife's like, Danny said that this is, you have to go check on it. He goes in there. I don't care if it's the baddest bitch you ever seen. That dude, it's hands on. You choked out my what? I got you for three months. Give me that baseball bat. <laughs> Boof. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so well, you know what I mean. So she's just like softly sitting in the bathtub, and he's just immediately just like because because Jack's a piece of shit, man. Right. Like this is the story. Like Jack is a thing. piece of shit. He has no redeemable qualities as a as a character in the film, but like his madness is still. This is a testament to the acting of Nicholas Nicholson because it's really about he's so convincing as a man slipping deeper into madness than where he began. Even from right. where he began, that like you you are willing to like do away with like how immoral he is because at that point, well at that point in the film he truly has already started to slip into madness. Right. Um, and I don't thing, know. I think the interpretations is- are the interpretations can't go too deep because that moment of like, okay, so he's he's making an immoral decision to just like cheat on his wife because my my wife mentioned this like oh he's cheating on his wife and it's just like Jesus I don't even know that this dude is still with us in the film anymore like i don't know how much he's like kind of still a conscious sentient like moral uh moral that's the thing but that's the thing all he has to do to be a decent person is be in the moment so what he does in that moment is he cheats on his wife he ignores the person that assaulted his son and then he goes back and he's like i don't know what the hell you're talking about yeah, straight up made her he feel. He could have been like, he could have been like, I didn't choke. I told you I didn't choke out the kid. It's a crazy lady. He's just like, nope. Oh, that's such a menacing scene too. So like that scene you're referring to, he's like, uh, at first he's just like, and you listen to. Well, I want to mention about the writing too, about the screenplay. So like, um, the writer of the screenplay is, uh, geez, hold on, he co-wrote it. Uh, Kubrick wrote the screenplay with Diane Johnson, right? Okay, so Diane Johnson was a novelist, um, and. Good writer. Um, I don't. I've never actually read anything from her, but like she's accomplished. I will just say that. Um, a good, she's a, she's an accomplished writer at, at bare minimum. Kubrick, also pretty accomplished writer, like pretty decent writer. The thing I noticed about this scene, this is the scene you're referring to, is that the writing is not. It's not astounding, right? It's not profound. It's not the lighthouse, right? It's not. It's not Eggers. You know, in the witch, where it's like it's a it's not a period piece, it's not deep, it's not Shakespeare. It's not it almost Shakespeare. is a period piece now. It, well, to this point, yeah, but it's not Shakespearean, is what I mean. The writing right. is not like profound in this way. It's very, and I noticed this in this scene because I'm just like, I know that I remembered what the next line was going to be when Danny said, or when uh, Wendy says to him, "Well, who who did this to him?" or something like that, and he was just like. And you just watch him do all the acting because there's not much. He has one line to say, and it's like a very obvious line. I think he did it to himself, but he has to say it in this way. He has to like kind of act with his eyebrows a little bit, and he does such a brilliant job of doing this because this is Nicholson, right? Where he's like trying to convince her, right? But I noticed like, this throughout the film, though, is that like throughout the film, everyone is speaking. They, there's not a huge script here i would wonder i would be curious to see how long the script is like it's probably pretty short because there's not a world of dialogue but every line is so deliberate and delivered so slowly and so intentionally that the actors don't have to worry about like like it's almost like a freedom that the actors got in the film where they like they have less lines to remember and they can focus on really delivering the lines in this nuanced way which is i think why kubrick did like two things like he was just like Here's less lines to worry about remembering, and also we're gonna do a hundred fucking takes every on all of them, so you're so worn out. And he had this method, I guess, too, that like he would take the first take and the last take, and everything in between he would scratch. 
and like the goal there was like the first take's probably going to be everything you got, so there might be something good there. Then I'm going to torture you for like another 80 takes, and then I'll take the last take because now I know that I've worn you to the bone, and like maybe you're closer to that madness I'm looking for, which is like really kind of manipulative and like rotten in some ways, but like also pretty fucking strategic to get what he's got, what he wants from his actors, right? Yeah, to work on like a horror movie. Right. So Nicholson, um, in that scene, he does a thing. And I'm sorry, I, I know I'm I'm like kind of tan I'm, I'm tangentially speaking here momentarily, but like he does this thing where he like at first he's like, Yeah, I think he did it to himself. And then um she's just like, I think we need to take him to a doctor or whatever. And he's just like, You want to take him to a what? I think we should take him to a doctor. You think you should leave the hotel? And he kind of starts flipping the switch, right? He's getting fucking pissed. He's like, this is so fucking typical of you. And he just flat, he flips out on her again. And then he storms out of the room. And do you, did you notice what he does when he's storming out of the room? No. And motherfucker looks right into the camera. Nicholson looks right into the camera. And it's like the eighth or ninth time he's done it in the film, but they're like so subtle. Like he's doing this throughout the whole film. Now there's this beautiful, um, I'll see if I can find. Maybe I'll post this on our Twitter page because I'm gonna have a hard time finding it really quickly. But there's a there's a YouTube video out there um, interpreting Nicholson's acting choices to look into the camera to make the film feel a little more surreal. And he does it when he's walking out of the room after being pissed off at at, at Wendy in that moment. He's just like he just glances this evil look into the camera. It's unbelievable, and he does this multiple times throughout the film because it's like the film is surreal and it's absurdist in this way that it works really well for the fourth wall to kind of be broken now and again. And I think he, he does it in that scene specifically. Right. Um, in, oh yeah. In very That's powerful a, sense. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of times where he is kind of just like staring off in general. Like, I mean, we'll like look at the last scene. Yeah. Which, well, by the way, let's, all right. So let's, let's go to the conclusion. Cause we, we, We've talked the movie uh, quite quite length quite at length at this point, but like there is the scene. I have a problem with the scene where they cut to him frozen, which is a very popular meme now. Obviously, you see it all over the internet. It's all over Reddit and Twitter. I think he should have cut it. Do you agree, or or do you think that that like helped to the lore of the film? Uh, I like it. I do not. I mean, I like it. I wish it was like separate. I wish it was like a. I don't. I wish. I don't want it in the film. I wish he had pulled it from the film. I wish he had like kept the shot, released the shot publicly ten years later. But I, I really, I really, it's too funny now. It became so. I don't know what the term you want. To, it became such a meme in the in the internet sphere that like it really. It's only one shot too. You could totally do away with it. It wouldn't matter. I don't even think it would affect. I mean, it's just it's definitive that he froze to death, and that's about it. I feel like after they did all that makeup, they're like, we can't not put it in there. Yeah, you might be right, but I just wish it wasn't in there. I thought it was too funny. It's too silly. He's just like looking. He's just frozen as shit, and it's like morning. I don't know. <laughs> I found it funny, but for me, it doesn't work in like a horror film that was just like like genuinely haunting you for like an hour straight. But um, what's your favorite scene in the film, Errol? Like, well, what's the one that really gets your goat? Yeah. I'm telling you it really is the big wheel scene. 
like the steady cam tracking shot through the hotel. Yeah, it just I was that it just grips me so much. It's I think it's because of the nostalgia of it. But like whole thing's really good and all that fun stuff and like really spooky, but like I'm like, God damn, if I couldn't just ride a big you big just want to ride that hotel. big wheel across like a fucking, you know, thirty eight thousand square feet. Whatever right. they're working with there. Yeah, when yeah, they it's a great, it's us. legendary too. When they were like, come play with us forever and ever, I was like, that doesn't seem like a bad gig. This hotel's kind of nice. It's kind of spacious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, I love what they do with the sound where like every time he hits the, the hardwood, it like the volume spikes and it's very legendary the way they did it. Like, um, because the Steadicam had been used in a couple of films before. I, th- I think like Marathon Man and there was a couple other ones. Um, There's like four or five films that they had used the Steadicam before. But this was the first time that they like introduces like, I guess in the theater, it really translated where like every time that 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 trike hit the fucking hardwood, it would like it was just like a shot of volume that like was very like gripping, you know, because he's on carpet, it's silent and then bang, he hits the hardwood Ooh. and you just hear the wheels turning again. Um Unbelievable, unbelievable piece of uh, filmmaking there. Um, so we talked about it. Let's. We got one last thing to talk about. Um, Errol, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna kind of sign us up now for a part two of The Shining uh, down the road. Are Are you game for that? Because I, I do feel like there's still a lot to talk about with the film. Yeah, for sure. There's probably uh, definitely some stuff we can. Uh, we, we can, can revisit it. We can re. I, I think it's worth a revisit. Maybe just a. Another hour or two of interpretation. It is such a marvelous film. Um, but we've got one last scene to talk about. Errol, why don't you give me your impressions and uh, fill me in on how you feel about the photograph closing out the, the film, like uh, your interpretations of it. Um, It just kind of proves that, uh, that that thing is like, uh, like it is haunted. It is just looking for like people to claim like that uh that picture itself is just like you know everyone who's like died there they everyone who's quote unquote joined the party yeah yeah it's a bit but also it's weird that he he's like there is like the host <gasps> you know i think that then whoever comes you you end up being the host yeah the next caretaker becomes the yeah. host of the party yeah i think you're right and i think that that's like i don't think it's a picture of purely the souls that have been taken I think it's like it's it's people it's a true photograph of people who have died. Um but I think that a good percentage of them are are caretakers from the hotel who have come to every time they hire another white male to like show up, another white man on Indian land to like care for this hotel and their soul is taken. That's that's where they wind up. They wind up in the photograph. It's almost like a, it's almost like an homage to real life. You just sell your soul, quote unquote, to work at a company, and then they put your picture on a wall. Yeah, yeah. There's some brilliance there. There's definitely some brilliance there. Um, yeah. I mean, we we've talked the film to death. I th- I think this will be call- this will call for a part two. Um, one of our longer podcasts, and it was kind of inevitable. It's an incredible film. Uh, if I mean, it's it's as good as films get. Um. We didn't really stick to so much the script, but we didn't even talk room to 237. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to still discuss. Um, w- let's take a short break, Errol. Uh, we'll take our one last break. When we come back, what we're going to do is we're going to give a rating and review. 
Um, I will, I will definitely um, agree to a part two on this podcast um, for the shining. We'll do a part two down the road because it is just such a, a big film and there's a lot of stuff we still haven't talked about. And um, maybe next year around Halloween, we'll do a part two. Uh, I think that's probably a good idea, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a horror film and uh, it's always good to watch this time of year. So maybe next year we will sink our teeth into a part two, try not to hit a bunch of the same notes, but um, in the meantime, we're going to take a short break. That's it for our analysis of the uh, of the film The Shining, 1980s uh, by, by uh, 1980 by Stanley Kubrick, um, adapted by a Stephen King novel. Um, in the meantime, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we're giving our rating, a review, and we'll tell you what's next on the Peripheral Views podcast. So hang tight, and we'll be right back. Okay, thanks for hanging in there, folks. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for supporting the podcast, giving us a listen. We really appreciate any support you guys give us. Um, we're gonna do a quick rating for the film. This is what we do for film and music. Um, whenever we do an album, whenever we do a film, we capstone it with a rating out of ten. Give a quick little review of the film, how we feel about the film, and um, you know, this is just how we close things out. And then uh, once we're done with that, we're going to tell you what's coming next on the on the Peripheral Views podcast. So first and foremost, uh, thank you guys again for listening. Um, let's dive in. Errol, why don't you kick us off with a short little review of the film and uh, your thoughts on the film, what it means to you. Give us, a, give us a big fat rating out of 10 and we'll close this thing out. Short little like review? Yeah, what do you think? Like, what, what does the film mean to you in, in terms of, you know, how often do you watch it? Like, what, like, just um, give us a summary of your. I, I watch it every now and again. Um, I really like it as far as horror films. It does a really good job striking the uh, the um, ups. So I like horror films that take place in the winter because upstate New York that usually falls right around like fall. Like it'll snow here too. So it's such a good like, point, dude. Such a right. good point easy to like get into the mood there also what this does and fucking you know what i realized was big in the 80s snow cats you got the snow cat the shine. <laughs> yeah you you're the, right man you got the, the snow cat in the, in the thing in the thing yeah man there's always just a fucking snow cat there to save the day that's all I was so, well just as a side note and i know we're trying to close this thing out but i wanted to say i watched an interview with john carpenter on uh he was just on stephen colbert a couple nights ago oh. and stephen colbert was just like you made all these great films. You made Halloween. You made Escape from New York. Yada yada. And Stephen Colbert was like, "I gotta tell you, 
the best film you ever made. It's one. Of, it's probably my favorite film of all time. It's the thing. And I was just like, yes, man. Thank. I'm so. I want that film needs a resurgence, and that's another one we'll revisit because the thing really is. Uh, it was getting some. It was getting some some uh, some clout on the freaking late night circuit, which was cool. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, continue where you're at. Oh, yeah, no, I really, I really like it for that. Um, I don't like it as much as the thing. I think the thing is definitely scarier. Um, I, I like it as, uh, in, I like it as a look into uh, how a. Uh, so it it is pretty like mystical and all that fun stuff, but I think it is a nice look at how someone who is on the edge of like doing something can be pushed into like doing more, like just by like a little bit of like cabin fever and like their vices and whatnot, and then just a devil on their shoulder. Mm, okay. And it's almost like um, I I like it, and not like as a warning per se, but like like I said, it's almost like a reverse fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. That's a, actually that's really yeah, that's a brilliant way to to describe the film. It's like a horrifying version of a of an inverse uh, fairy tale. No, that's beautiful, perfect. Because it's like it's the perspective of the villain. Like everything's pretty much from Jack's perspective for the most part. And granted, the sort the, of the, the good it, guys. It, it is, but there's, make it out. there's really no, yeah. There's like very few. Like I guess. I guess Dick Halloran is like the closest thing to a hero of the film, and maybe Shelley, I guess, to or uh, Wendy. He's for... the Theseus. He goes yeah. back yeah. to the island. He goes back. He went back. All right. Well, hey, that's your that's a good review. I I can appreciate that. I agree with a lot of it. Hit us with your rating. What's your rating for The Shining? Out of ten. Out of ten. Um, you know what? I should I should give it a higher rating, but I'm gonna go seven point five. What? Yep. No way! Do you not like this movie? I I love it. Wow! Shocking, yeah. Errol. You just tired and grumpy. Why are you so no, grouchy? No, I'm not. I know. <laughs> you barely even touched your lamb <laughs> legs of lamb, and then your you ice didn't cream. Take your, you, you didn't, you didn't eat your you lamb got a whole bunch of. We got a whole can of apricots. You didn't Jesus, even... dude. Are you just trying to yeah, be conservative no. with your ratings now? Or like, I'm well, shocked. No, I, I have to. I give You're breaking my to, heart, man. I give eights to everything. I give you think the light. Everything. You think the lighthouse yeah. is a full 2.5? No. Yeah, 2.5 points better than, than the fucking Shining? I think. I'm not trying to influence you. Like, if this is your pick, if this is your rating, it's your rating. That's the lowest rating you've given a film yet. You would say so that I'll the death you, of I'll... Stalin is better than this film, bro. I'm just saying, double standard. So, so here, here's why I'm going seven, seven point five. Jesus. Um, death of Stalin was uh. It's a, it's almost like it. You know what? I feel I feel bad because I it's Death well, of no, Stalin. I feel like you want to like give a, Death of Stalin a 7.5 and maybe bump this one up. That's what you should do. No, no, so I like Death of Stalin for what it was. It's almost like a play. You it know is, what I mean? Very much, very much so, yeah, for sure. And um I do like it for like the period piece. Uh what I like it's so here, here's here's why I want to say 7.5. Jesus, um, I can't even believe my ears. You're shocking me. You're truly shocking me. You're shocking yeah, my system. So I feel like I had a I had a lot of like it's just easy like eights and nines and whatnot. Um if I liked the like the the mythical aspect of it a little bit more, then I would like it more, but I don't 
I feel like that's almost like a cop out. Like the beard on ancient Indian burial ground. Like everyone here becomes evil. Like yeah. it would have almost been better if it was just like. I don't know. Like, I guess it is a good way to go about it, but uh, it's almost like the mythos behind it. The reason why it's missing, I, it's missing what you want, which is you want, you want I, to go I deeper. Wanna, I want to, yeah, I want to sink my teeth into the, yeah. into the back part. Yeah. Of Cause it. there's, there's so much, it's almost intentional. So like, if I'm going to be critical of the film in any way to join you a little bit, uh, I don't agree with your rating, but like, that's your rating. That's it. This is what, you, this is what we do. We, we rate things the way we like them. It's, it's for the record, but, and we can always go back and if you see the film in a, in a new light in a later date, we can always change it if you like it more or even like it less. But like, I agree with you. There is like a intentional ambiguity to the film that makes it feel a little less, um, deep than it probably could have been so it's really it's really good i give it i would give it a higher rating on an initial watch i'd give it like an eight and 8.5 on it dude i'm i'm so glad you said that Uh, this i this this i will totally agree with so like yeah but going back to it and then like actually so here's like a the couple movies that like it reminds me of uh i think um i think the thing does a way better uh time with the cabin fever and isolation sure i think it does it has a way like bigger impact and like a, it tells a better story with that oh, i like and, the thing more than this film i will i will yeah. that I will and i think that. um and i think banshees of insurance really does just it, it kind of just beats that one kind of the point that this is like getting to to a pulp and that's um jack wants to like project his stuff on someone else but he just he just uh, the the one guy just doesn't choose to kill his best friend. He just chooses to like maim himself. So, but I, I think it's just look. There's, I wish it would have kind of like went more in depth. Maybe like I would like the book more because it's just truly like the hotel like morphing someone uh, like from right. a good person into like a bad thing. But I'm like, it's I I don't like I don't like Jack. I really I really like. Um, we didn't even like, talk about the treatment of of Shelley Duvall in the in the production we either, could that could is, be the whole next that could be a whole other that thing too yeah that's probably it too that's probably why i'm like i don't even hold this to that high regard because no matter how good like if any like movie like that she didn't deserve that yeah i think so, a little bit of that stuff was a little blown out of proportion but largely not to not to justify it because it does sound like she was she was tormented by kubrick basically non-stop through the film but i do think that i don't i think what happened was is that he basically tormented her and insulted her and made her feel very small as an actress through most of the film and i think it was more of a quantity and it was like a quantitative problem less than a qualitative problem whereas like i don't think that he did anything that i don't think he did or said anything to her that was like really evil i think that he was just he just it was like a war of attrition well once you, you like he just wore her down yeah, you get the world record for reshots and scenes. Like you kind of fucking you're ter- you're tearing your everybody down. And like yeah. this is what this is the this is like the problem with with artists. And I, in my opinion, I think Kubrick is. Um, well, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm just gonna shift over to my perspective, and I'll I'll kind of lead this into my rating. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Kubrick, I just think that that comes with the cost. There's a cost that has to be paid. Where I think I think he actually forked over probably 20 years of his health and life. Um, I mean, he died at 70 years old, which is not super old. You know, he died in 1999 before his last film even was released. I think he basically gave his life over to these to these art forms. I think that um, he probably could have lived another 10 years, maybe pumped out another film or two. 
um, had he not given so much to the art form. Um, because you can see it when you watch the behind the, the you know behind the scenes rare footage stuff of Kubrick making this film or um, you know making any film. I mean, Full Metal Jacket. There's some there's some stuff for that too, and he he just looks like a man who hasn't slept in 20 years. He looks awful. He looks extremely unhealthy every time he's on set, and there's a reason for that. And I think that that was projected onto Shelley Duvall in this film. He does I mean, look like he aged really quick, like in his younger pictures to like his other. Yeah, stuff. he looks awful. And I think that I think this is like Coppola experiences a little bit. I'm surprised he's as alive as he is. And I, I know I disparaged his name um, in a previous podcast based on his affiliations with it as, a, you know, a, a convicted pedophile. But um, <laughs> uh, but I think Coppola went through something like even more drastic where he like suffered a nervous breakdown on the, on the set of apocalypse now. And I think that true brilliant visual artists such as these men, they give over a part of their lives. I think they give, they give over a part of their health to this art form. Um, And for me, the shining, I don't like watching the shining more than the thing. Not even close. Like if you told me I could only watch one film for the rest of my life, like, I would pick the th- if, between the two. I would pick the thing in a heartbeat. Um, I enjoy the f- the thing is so much more fun. It's so much more redeeming. It's scarier. It's it's it doesn't take itself too se- too seriously. I think it. I think it's a bigger in or it's a more in depth look too in like the human psyche as well. Like it's just like it can people- be how you interpret it. But like here's here's where I divert. From. So like I agree with most of your assessment, but this is where my my score is going to drastically divert from you. Um, I do agree with you that the film does not did not hold up on repeat viewings. Like I'm now at probably I've seen the film a lot, which doesn't help it. Um, but at this point in the game, I've I've seen it so many times that it's it's just not holding up for me as much. Like it's not scary to me anymore. It's just fascinating. Now. You know the corners of the hotel. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm 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 literally looking at the set. I'm looking at the color schemes. I'm looking at like the dirty details because the film is not it still grabs me and I still am fascinated by it in a very deep way. And I don't mean to disparage the film because I I, I do think it's a, a masterpiece and I'm going to give it a masterpiece grade. But I will I'm going to give the I'm going to give you the credit where I think you're do, where it's due because I do think you're right. I think the film does lose some it loses a little bit across many viewings and like it doesn't get better with time it gets it stays the same which is not what you want from a film you want to film the age well and the, this film does not it's not scary hey, but, but it's, that's but isn't that kind of the purpose of the hotel is to just yeah stay it's the stuck same? in time just stuck yeah. In, in a yeah transfixed position i mean maybe yeah um it's like me, an idealistic good old days for me, it's like it, it's one of those deals where, like, I I know that I'll if I take a few years off from the film, I can come back to it and be shocked by it again. Um, when it's fresh, it's hard for me to to truly be in love with it the way I was when it when it first came out, or not when it first came out, but when I first saw it. Obviously, I was I wasn't even alive when it first came out, but like the first time I saw it, you know, and and truly like um, dove into its like nuances and was willing to actually digest it. I was young man and um, like getting older now and I've seen it a lot of times. And uh, I would say that I would say that, if, you know, with a good amount of space between each viewings, I still think it has a lot to offer. I still think it, I don't think this, I know this. I think it's one. Of the, I, I, I'll rephrase again. I know it's one of the most influential films ever made. 
It truly is. It's it's DNA is all over cinema, especially horror. It's just it can't be. It can be found in every corner of. There's every a corner. reference in Jimmy Neutron. There's a reference in Toy Story, like the floor in Sid's in Sid's hallway when Woody's trying to cross the hallway to get over to the. Oh, it's the. Hotel. That's the carpet. It's the carpet. Yeah. It's like it's everywhere. This film and the shot and selections and everything. For me, it is the most. It is the single most important horror film ever made. I do agree with you on some of your criticisms of it and um i do think the thing i like the thing more it's it, it, i love the thing more but i'm on my rating is based more on uh, i'm trying to be a little more objective with my with my ratings in terms of personal appeal so i'm going to give it a higher rating than i gave the thing and that's not because i like it more than the thing because i don't the thing is a better is for me it's a better film but i don't think it's a technically better film this film in his technical prowess, in Stanley Kubrick's um, contribution to a genre he had never even filmed in before, to just show up and make a horror film that was so influential and so haunting. We didn't even talk about the fact that at the end of the film, all every time there's a, a jump scare or a jump scene for Shelley Duvall's character, that there's the Native American chanting is getting louder and louder and louder of the ghosts and the spirits of the hotel. Like these little nuances, there's just so much here. Um, for me, that that brings the film up um, just slightly above the thing. I will knock a do- I will dock a point, um, a slight point, only only based on the fact of the criticisms Errol discussed. For me, it's a nine point five out of ten. Let's go. We knocked it down. I had to take. I had to because I knew going into this, I was going to have to dock something because it was just. I, I felt the same way that you did in that, like, I was like, man, this just isn't, I'm still fascinated and I love watching it. It's enjoyable to watch, but it did lose a little bit of something after seeing it so many times, which maybe that's my own fault. You know, I don't know. Yeah, no, um, not taken away from it or anything. I, I really like it. I just, uh, like I was saying uh, during the uh, Stephen King adaptations, like I don't, I don't really like Stephen King as I think like as much as like I should, but I appreciate like some of the stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something right now. If this podcast expands at all into the social media sphere, you're gonna have a lot of explaining to do, sir. Why people are fucking? What do they care about this guy? Or something? I'm not. Or listen, I'm not gonna tell. I I I appreciate your honesty and like. But if you're telling me if you're gonna walk around in the in the social media sphere claiming that the death of Stalin is a better film than The Shining. Brother, you're gonna have a war. No, it's about my personal rating. It's like, what would I tell I you? Listen, I listen. I I appreciate that. I'm I'm just speaking on behalf of the people, son, not on behalf of me. I I appreciate that you like. I don't agree. I don't even agree with it. But I, I that's how I want you to rate things is is on a personal scale. But the people. Yeah, are what do you, What do you want me to do? Be like superficial and be like everyone yeah. rates it at nine or ten. I'm Hell no. I need a I need authentic. I want my authentic co-host. I didn't um I wasn't necessarily that scared because uh I was like Danny's got superpowers and like Shelly's got that telekinesis. Right, and uh Shelly Duval's a really good mom. I was like, they're gonna make it out. And then they made it out, and I was like, there we go. Yeah, 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 it doesn't work as a horror film as much after multiple viewings. It really works more as like a Jesus Christ, what the fuck is going on? I want to interpret this film. You know, it's it a works, nice, like, it's an art house. Art house. I like thing. it. I like it as a nice spiral, like a nice. Uh, so you think that you think the lighthouse is that much better than this film? I I, I don't. Yeah. I think I actually. I think the lighthouse actually. 
Um, well, you know, as all films do, they stand on the shoulder of giants. So like shoulders of giants. So like the lighthouse, um, doesn't exist without this film, but I actually right. think Eggers edged out. Like, I, yeah, think, I think for I me, think it's it, a better film. It's like, a, that's a different, that's like, I enjoy it more to watch. And I think it's better. Cause I think the writing's better. Well, I think, I think he did more too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, those are our ratings. Fucking deal with it. Listeners. Well, I said, I said, thank it, you for okay, your support, it, but deal with it. You're, you're, you're right. Okay. But uh, I said he did more, but that's not fair because he was pioneering, but that's just the thing. I'm jaded. Like that's, I'm, you know, that's yeah. a lot of the stuff is just jadedness, bro. That's you. That's just you. Listen, this is your, that's your rating. You, you, you reap what you sow. Um, Let's talk. Well, let's talk what's coming next. Up next on the Peripheral Views podcast, we are coming back with our third ranking show. I know we just did one. We're going to pump another one out. Um, Big time UFC 295 card coming up. We want to talk a little UFC, a little MMA. Lots been going on in the sport. We kind of kicked off the show with that. So we're going to dive down down that road again um, with a ranking show. UFC 295 coming up. Uh, By the way, a fight I predicted. I will mention. Uh, if you don't remember back um, in our one of our previous ranking show uh, shows, I predicted at UFC 300 that uh, I wanted Yuri Prohachka and Alex Pajeda to fight for the light heavyweight title. Getting a little quicker. I'm getting a little sooner than UFC 300 is coming up at you in literally a week's time, just over a week's time. Yeah, um, like I mean, it was rough that the uh, that the uh, main fight got switched from John Jones, but. Uh, not that upset. Let me uh, tell you something right now, folks. Aspinall and Pavlovich is a fight you will not want to miss. And don't blink because between those two heavyweights, they have two of the shortest octagon time per fight average. Yeah, I saw anybody that. Anybody in the, the one sport. Guy, who, who is it? The one the one dude has like a... Aspinall. Like all, yeah, he's like all Aspinall's finishes. Aspinall's all finishes. And Hasn't Pavlovich, made it out like the first round or something. Yeah, and shit. Pavlovich is on like an eight-fight knockout streak. Like this fight will not last. It is going to be fireworks, and it's going to be for the interim heavyweight uh, title. So uh, in John Jones' absence, it sounds like what they're going to do is they're basically going to go strap an interim title on one of these guys, and then Jones and Stipe are going to fight uh, next year for the heavyweight strap. And then, and then Jones, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a farce. Whoever wins, they're both going to retire anyway. So like, they'll just make it undisputed. So these guys got to treat it like they're fighting for the, the true belt. Um, and yeah, that's what I mean. So, but I, I'm, I will, I will, I will say this now out loud in public and I'll say it again when we do the preview show. Uh, Alex Pajeda versus Yuri Prohaska is going to be absolute batshit craziness. I said this back in the ranking show. Um, I'm on record. I'm telling you now, these two have very dynamic striking styles. There will probably not be a lot of wrestling. That fight is going to, for as long as it lasts, is going to be bananas. And this card is going to be fucking fireworks. Because like I said, the co-main event, you got two heavyweights with very little octagon time because of their finish rate. And you've got a that's, I mean, that's the scariest fight. Yeah, dude. man. I'm both I need of, to be the ref during that. Dude, this fight. card sucks all the way down except for those two fights. Those two fights are worth every penny that you would spend to watch. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be good. And we're gonna talk more about it um next week's episode in um short order at, along with that episode. We are doing a ranking show. Along with that ranking show, we'll be doing the UFC 295 preview show. We're going to talk a little about while it's coming up. 
um, on that card. But we got to have a ranking. So UFC 295 takes place on November 11th in Madison Square Garden. Therefore, Errol and I are going to rank, in, and this is going to be from our perspective. We're going to do some research because the uh, the venue is very old. But we're going to do a little research, and we are going to pull our top five Madison Square Garden sports moments of all time. That'll be our ranking show. Um, we'll probably kick the show off with our UFC 295 preview, and then we will dive into the rankings, top five MSG sports moments of all time. That will close that out, and then we will announce, therefore, um, at, at the end of that show, what's coming next. So um, that's the podcast for tonight. That's the podcast on The Shining, at least part one. I would anticipate a part two in the next um, in the you know in the coming months probably sometime um, next I would say next year maybe around this I time would at next least year. I would say like at least like a decade ten years jeez you want to talk about this again in ten years well I would oh, like I some time movies. off from the film I've been like obsessing over the film for like no, a week I mean you're, that was the only natural progression you said like you know yeah maybe we take a few years off but Let's... anyway we we'll come back to the film there's a lot we didn't get to discuss uh, just based on time constraints it's a great film um i would i would say that's a it's a october classic a halloween classic um always got to be involved in the repertoire but like we said um it's got some repeat viewing issues but it is a masterful piece of of filmmaking and we, i think it's i think it's worth um it's worth its weight in gold. It's it's one of the great films of all time. And uh, I, I suggest anyone who hasn't seen it, if you've made it all the way through this podcast with all the spoilers, luckily we were so um, we're, we're so you know unchronological that you could probably still watch the film in, in chronological order and it would make good sense to you. Um, that being said, that's The Shining. That's the Peripheral Views Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We are at X. Um, at, I'm sorry, on X, at Peripheral V123. SoundCloud.com forward slash Peripheral Views 123. Check us out on YouTube. Throw us just right in your search bar to find us, Peripheral Views Podcast. Uh, we are also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just throw us in the search bar. Quick, quick find. Please subscribe. Um, if you subscribe and like what you hear, give us that five-star rating plus a nice review. That would be really helpful for analytics. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, and we have a website where all of this information and all of this content can be found. Peripheralviewspodcast.com. Check us out there. We've got our ratings listed up. We'll be adding The Shining to that list with our ratings involved. Um, it was our fifth film in that series. We'll be back with the 18th episode of Peripheral Views next week. Um, we'll Wait, you mean week. 17? No, you're right. Yes, you're right. 17. This is, well, it's your fault. That's your fault. We haven't done Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm sorry, dude. We're waiting on you, dog. Audience is waiting on you. We want to hear. They want to hear what you got to say. Um, so we'll be diving into that at some point too. That will probably. You know what's good about that special announcement because there's it's it's a random. It'll just show up right. one day. Yeah, it'll just be like, boom. You'll know. Boom, free episode out of nowhere. I mean, they're all free, but like out of nowhere, An unanticipated episode on Killers of the Flower Moons coming forthcoming at some point. Um, but in the meantime, you can anticipate our next episode being a new addition to the ranking show that being said thank you again for listening we really appreciate all the support and the listenership this has been the peripheral views podcast and we will catch you on the next round
Thank you.